that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us. Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. And we're back! PFF NFL podcast, Steve Palazzolo here with Sam Monson. Sam, we took a week off, recharged the batteries. You took a little vacation, staycation, and uh, we're back at it for season nine, by the way. We're doing the season nine PFF NFL podcast. That's where we are right now in our lifespan. Most shows don't make it to season nine. Isn't that usually when the wheels fall off? That's the sketchy writing at the back end, and we have to to wrap the whole thing up. We're the other way. Disappointing finale. Our sketchy writing happens during the 2016 season when Renner took over and you guys did. like, that's when we went down and now we're working our way back up. We need one of those credibility. We need one of those like swan song uh, episodes where we bring back everybody from the first series, you know? So Ben comes on, Mike comes on. Tuckman. Yeah. Tuckman comes back. Get everybody back from the first couple of series. And we just have like a, you know, a nice, uh, there's some sort of, you know, music and everyone makes an appearance. Be great. Everybody at PFF has at least been on the show once, right? Like pretty much. Pretty when much. We did a whole like we retro had Ian look. We had, Ian, we had a whole retro look at PFF at one point. So we had Neil, we had Ian, uh, Ian, the guy who knows nothing about football and just, you know, the IT director. Um, so I want to here's what I want to know from our listeners, the millions and millions of people out there. How many of you have been with us essentially since 2012, maybe 13, when we started the podcast, we were young we had Sam and I working with David Tuckman, who was our host. And we went through different iterations of that too, Sam. We had a couple shows. We had like a whole season. We did what the three of us mm. on there at the same time where he would kind of sit in the middle and bounce it back and forth. We did some where you and I would switch off by week and he'd get Mike Clay on there to do some fantasy stuff. Like we've had all sorts of different iterations of this podcast. We threw the big time throw cast on the feed at one time. Yeah. That was a big hit. Yeah. Zach and I, uh, Talked quarterbacks, big time throw cast. That could have taken off. Mm. It's almost like the name was uh, was a problem. Um, yeah, Tugman was throws. was the host back when we didn't have any idea how to host anything. <laughs> now look at us. Look yeah, at me now, hosting. Now we're fine. Look at me. Just now you're just seamless. in the conversation. This is beautiful. So, hang on. I didn't tell you about. Did you my my stay vacation thing right? Yeah, almost all of it was at home. We went away to a cabin in the woods for a few days, right at the start. Um, do you know how close we are to like legit Amish country here? No, really close, like really, really close. You head out east for like forty minutes. You're in like deep into Amish country. Really? Now, I, so I don't know that much about Amish, right? I just know they dress in the weird old ye olde outfits and they don't use electricity or whatever, right? Um. So they're all, you get there and they're all poodling around their buggies and horses and stuff. The other thing they do is rollerblade. Really? Because <laughs> apparently that like takes the boxes, right? It's just, it's just wheels on feet. Yeah, it's not, you don't have to plug it in. There's no engine. There's no electricity. It's just, you know, motor, it's just motorless transport. They're 40 so you, minutes away. 
pretty much. So I didn't know that they were that close. You cool. you get out there and there's these guys in like you know sort of the the underslung beard, the neck beard thing, the hat, the like cravat tie dealy and rollerblades. And it's just bizarre. So on the way back, we went into this uh, like Amish furniture store thing. Cause you know, so it's funny because myself and my wife are like, you know, they say opposites attract. We yeah. agree on basically nothing, nothing. You have the exact opposite taste on pretty much everything in the world. So I like, you know, solidly well-built, handmade, wooden, you know, rustic type furniture, right? Kind of crap the Amish hammer together when they've got nothing else to do. She likes, you know, like white, shiny stuff that came from Ikea. So we're in this. Put together yourself. That's, I mean, that's a big problem. But anyway, she's, you know, the, the nice sort of white, shiny, minimalist type look. Whereas I'm in there, like in this Amish shop, like looking at all these like really solidly built, you know, table like big rustic solid kitchen tables and all that kind of stuff but so they've they've got all this giant warehouse thing of furniture and then they've got like you know including for like kitchens living rooms desks office furniture and stuff right and they've got they obviously they know their market so they're selling to you know regular people that use electricity and stuff so where the tv should go and like the unit I got like this cardboard picture of a TV just like plonked in the hole. And then same thing for like the, the office furniture, right? Where your desk is, there's like a pretend iMac done in cardboard, just put there. It's like insert iMac right here. Um, it was pretty good. I, I definitely wanted to That's buy good. stuff, but I wasn't, I wasn't allowed. I'm shocked that you would well, disagree with allowed. someone in your life, like your wife. It's not like it's one way traffic, you know, I'm just saying, just saying, Anyway, for those tuning in to listen to, to some football, we're going to start our team preview season, uh, series. AFC East starts right now. Uh, Sam and I combined. Sam did about 20% of the work here. But we combined to do team previews for all 32 teams. They're over at PFF.com. Went position by position. Tried to give you an extensive look at you know, what, to, what to expect in 2020, the depth chart. And, of course, since we took our little week off to recharge – a lot of stuff's happened. We've had a Jamal Adams trade. We've yeah. had a lot of opt-outs, uh, 80% of which I think have happened in the AFC East. So starting the AFC East gives us a good opportunity to discuss all of the New England Patriots opt-outs and what that means. And um, yeah, we'll just stick with that division and uh, knock out one per show over the next few weeks. Yeah. Starting with, let's just start with the opt-outs generally for a second. Um, yeah. Were you surprised by how many there have been? When's the deadline? It's it's coming. They want to move it up, right? Because probably there's been Wednesday. so many. I think it's this Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, so have you been I'm surprised with sure how many there are? I am. I am surprised. I don't. I don't know if I put too much. I didn't put too much thought into it. I don't think I went down and said, "Hey, I wonder how many uh, guys are going to opt out." But I think when they all, especially when they come in um, in bunches, it starts to be surprising, and it's like, and it's all mostly. I mean, no, they're all good reasons. I think everybody has a reason for why they're doing it. And it's I their make, choice. I make 40 so far. 40 opt-outs? Yeah, total. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's not a ton as like a percentage, but I, honestly, I think we might see a lot more by the, by the deadline. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's already more than I expected there to be, I think. Yeah. 
Because there's a lot of, I mean, it, it depends on your perspective too, because there's a lot of money on the line potentially. Yeah. It depends on how um, how the NFL has ranked your pre-existing conditions and all this stuff. So um, there's a lot that goes into it. And I think it obviously, when we talk about the New England Patriots and the fact that in addition to losing most of their defensive players, they've also lost half their defense, I think, to opt out too. So um, they've got, uh, they have a lot of uh, holes now because of all this. Do you, do you think there's anything to, I mean, so the Patriots have had eight guys opt out. The next highest team has had three and there's a whole bunch with two, a ton of teams haven't had anybody bounce. Do you, is there anything to that or is it just weird coincidence? I think so a few years, I mentioned this to you off air, right? A few years ago, a lot of the 49ers were like the team that had guys retiring early. Remember Anthony Davis retired, Patrick Willis, Chris Borland. I think if anything, there's, guys talk right like they're friends right so Dante Hightower is probably good friends with Patrick Chung and they're good friends with the next guy you know whoever else you know Marcus Cannon or whatever um, and they all have their own individual reasons but I would imagine that they discuss some of the stuff what are you going to do what do you think right. you know you've got this you're dealing with you got this you're dealing with and maybe there's just something to all right yeah you know this is like you know just getting advice or you know having a, a friendly relationship where you know that tends to happen I also wonder with the Patriots if it's easier, Nate Solder also opted out. That was kind of hmm. that was kind of an expected one. A guy who used to have cancer. Yeah. His son has cancer that he's been battling. But I also wonder for players, they do want to win, and they do like probably. I don't know if they want to win as much as fans want them to win. You know, right. like this is their job, and they need to. They're they're. You really get to this point as a professional athletes. Yeah, you're just tr- you're trying to provide for your family. Like you're trying to first, and then it like fans care way more about winning. But I do wonder how much. Guys, guys like the Patriots, like I got all these Super Bowl rings, like I got all this stuff, you know, like I've got these things yeah. that you try to achieve, and I'm right. more willing to step back. I mean, there's definitely, like you said, there's a sort of wide spectrum of guys that have opted out, and some of them yeah. make a ton of sense compared with others. Right? I mean, like Nate Solder, as you said, was expected. He's the, I mean, he's the poster child for a guy that should be opting out, right? He's for sure. already made a ton of money, a ton of money he's he's dealt with cancer his son's dealt with cancer like they are as high risk as it's going to get and there's no there's almost no upside for him so why wouldn't you opt out if there's an option there to do it that makes a ton of sense what what's interesting to me is there's also these guys you know we've we've dealt with this a little bit in terms of skirting around the concussion idea this idea that guys don't want to self-report this stuff because that's where you get put on the shelf and that's where your job disappears. If you're not out there, right. You need to be out there to maintain your spot on the roster. Otherwise you're gone. There's a bunch of these guys who would have been like roster bubble guys who are instead essentially saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to risk it this year. I'm not going to, you know, chase what uh, is a possibility for the risk. Like I think what you're seeing is, you know, as much as there's debate among the general populace, as to how severe this COVID stuff is and how much you should be taking it seriously and how much of a risk it is to any one of us individually. The second you have something that changes that dynamic, like I'm lucky enough that my immediate family is all healthy enough, you know, as far as we know, one of us are clear risk factors in terms of age, in terms of weight, obesity, underlying illnesses. We're good, right? We're relatively low risk. But like if you had somebody that was, immunosuppressed through chemo or whatever, if you had, you were dealing with any of this stuff, it immediately changes everything. Like you're, 
as soon as that happens, you're in this camp of, I am not risking this unless you can 100% assure me it's going to be buttoned up tight and you can't. So I'm out. Yeah. College football is dealing with this too. I also imagine that there's, there's kind of a stress level of look again, varying degrees of how bad is it when you get it or in the opinions of how bad it is for you personally when you get it. But I think the stress of trying to not get it is a thing as well right? Like you got to be in the locker room. You got to be social. Like you're like, you're being put into the situation where you do have to be around people a lot. And it's just like, there's like a lot of work to do to, to not, you know, to not be around people and to not sneeze on people or whatever it might be. Right. So (laughs) I think that's, (laughs) and it's a constant battle to not sneeze on people. I'm always trying to not sneeze on people. Got to cover. Anyway, um, let's, let's go through the AFC East. Name a team, AFC East. Let's kick it off. Well, let's start alphabetically. Let's start with the Bills. Buffalo Bills, the first team in our team preview. (sighs) All right. I think the Bills are good. I think they're going to be good. Here's the deal. They are, as I was going through, and I did their, you know, we we go position by position. I did their team ranks. I was actually surprised at where they ended up from a ranking standpoint, like across the board, you know, so we go and just, just position by position and you go through and most of their positions were kind of on the bottom half of the league, offensive lines, like right in the middle running backs, whatever defensive line was at 20. Like it's not great, but it's got some depth linebackers. I know bills fans probably believe in them a little bit more than we do, but we have them like middle of the pack because they didn't tackle all that well, but where they're strong receiver and secondary of course it'll come down to the quarterback but my point is they feel like they should have a good roster but when you go position by position it's not great but it's good in the right spots receiver and secondary that second part i think is is one of the keys that yeah they're they are good if you're going to overachieve that's a good way of doing it is being strong in the right areas and weak in weak in the right areas um you know if you're going to have flaws have them in the least consequential spaces. And if you're going to have strengths, have them in the most consequential. So that's helpful. But we've also said for the past couple of seasons now that the Bills, I don't want to say they've been overachieving, but they are consistently generating results greater than the sum of their parts, right? So yep. it therefore stands to reason that when you distill it down to the parts, to the parts they'll yeah. look worse. Um, so I think that all makes sense, that when you actually divide it up, position by position, the bills don't look as good as they are when you build all those pieces together and you actually end up with something significantly better because the thing that makes Buffalo markedly better than those pieces is the coaching and the scheme and what happens when you put all those pieces in the right situation. So I think the fact that they have that coaching group of, you know, Sean McDermott, Leslie Frazier, um, Brian Dabble, Heath Farwell. Did you know Heath Farwell was their special teams coordinator? Old Nails. Nails Farwell. Oh, I did not, did not realize that. Neither did I. Um, but when, you know, the, the coaching ticket, I think, is a significant part of this team being really good going forward. Um, I love that receiving group. I mean, I've said this before that I – look, I, we've kind of talked about this plenty on the podcast. I more and more – the it's longer a new season, this, Sam. Nobody, it's season nine. It's a new season. <laughs> Nobody's listening to season nine it's yet. It's just – Start. We can repeat ourselves now. That's why I did it. 
Perfect. We repeat the, ourselves. Uh, you know, the longer we've been doing this, the more convinced I become that the single most important trait for a receiver is just being able to separate. You know, and, and it, it almost sounds too obvious to put like that, but you want guys that get open. You want guys that generate separation. And if that, everybody has flaws. Everybody's got something that they don't do as well as they do other things. And if you're going to have flaw, have it in the contested catches, have it in, you know, run after the catch, whatever you want, blocking, don't have it in separation, have your strength in separation, have your flaw, something else, because ultimately that's the most important thing. Not just because it helps across the board, right? It buys the quarterback extra room. It also buys you margin for error at the back end. And I, the thing that I've been sort of thinking of more recently is that I think it fundamentally makes quarterbacks life easier by the picture you paint them. So one of the reasons that people talk about the game slowing down for uh, players when they hit the NFL, once they've been there for a while, you know, that first of all, the speed difference between the college game and the NFL game sort of overwhelms them. And then it starts to slow down. And I think one of the reasons that is for quarterbacks in particular is because there's a massive difference between college open and NFL open when it comes to wide receivers. So there was this anecdote, I think, of uh, Peyton Manning and Bruce Arians. Peyton Manning threw this horrible, uh, threw the ball away, right? Arians reams him in the meeting room, right? Rolls his back and it's like, why didn't you throw it to one of the, why didn't you throw it to somebody? And he's like, who? Nobody's open. <laughs> it was like, like, Peyton, this is open in the NFL. Like, this guy needs to get the ball. You, that, you can't throw that away. This guy, you need to learn that this is what open looks like in the NFL. This is a guy with like, you know, a half shade of inside leverage on his, on his move. Yeah, like it took, it took Manning, you know, a season to figure that out or whatever. Like it takes these guys a while to work out what it looks like. So if you get guys that separate more, you make that easier because suddenly you don't have to compute all right, he's not college open. Is the NFL open? Yes, he is. Let's throw it to him. You look up and it's like, all right, that guy's open. You save that beat of mental computation. So when you've got a guy like Josh Allen surrounding him with guys that change that picture fundamentally has to be really good for his development. Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. That is absolutely true. And I'll add to that. When guys get open, and they get open quickly, that is what protects the offensive line. That is what allows the quarterback to get rid of the ball mm -hmm. quicker and protect the line. And it, it is the reason why we use the term creep back toward average. It's the reason why we say, look, you don't necessarily need an offensive line that is the top, that is top three, that's going to give you an hour to throw the ball or anything like that. You just need to not be a disaster. You just need to not you essentially need your lineman to not lose in the time that it takes one of the first two receivers to get open. So if you have a top two receivers that get open quickly, you can deal with a lesser offensive line. I think the bills have done a really nice job and jets fans. When we get there, jets fans might look at the bills offensive line building and say, that's all we need, right? It's, yeah. They threw a whole bunch of stuff at the wall over the last two or three years. They've brought in the one, the one guy that's remains there is Deion Dawkins. Um, he's remained there at left tackle. And since, uh, you know, they, you know, since the new regime came in, you've got Quentin Spain coming in from Tennessee, Mitch Morris from the chiefs. John Feliciano is out for the season with a torn peck now. So no longer scheduled to start, but they still have Daryl Williams again from the Panthers. 
who they might be a rejuvenation project. Ty Inseki, that's my guy. Ty Inseki, former Washington player. Um, he has been quietly one of the best swing tackles in the NFL for like six years. And he might finally have a chance to start. You could kick Cody Ford into guard. I mean, they have like eight legitimate guys with starting experience that are all potential mid-tier type options. So, I mean, that's a good way of building an offensive line. Oh, I think if you if you ask the Jets right now if they would take the Bills' offensive line in terms of in terms of where their new five group is going to get to, like if you said, given the range of outcomes with the people you just acquired on your offensive line, would you accept an outcome of that group being the Bills? I think they'd say, hell yeah, like give me that right now, I'll take it. I'm, I'm, it sure the potential is much higher, but I will absolutely take that baseline from the group that we've just assembled. Um, yeah, so I think they could figure out they can get a, a starting five that's reasonable. Cody Ford might be the key there. The 2019 second round pick need to see him improve, but I mean, they've got a a decent solid group. Since you brought it up, let let me piss some people off with a quick tangent. I, am I the only one that thinks terming them the Washington football team for this year is actually marketing genius. I mean, if you, if you make a case. Uh, Okay. Um, Let me tell you why. Right. So, he, the pressure has finally reached the point where you've agreed, yeah, we need to dump this racist name. Let's get rid of it. So that happens, right? Now you're stuck. What do you do? Do you, you know, you can't, you're dumping the name immediately. So you're left with something. You've got to, you're, there's some kind of issue with this dude squatting on the various names. So you got to either work through that if you want one of those things or come up with a completely new name. The biggest problem is you've got, all this merchandise that you've got to like spool up and get everything functioning in like a couple of weeks. That's pretty tough to do. Um, But what you can do is when you make this change, there's going to be a ton of merchandising sales from everyone jumping on board of, you know, you got to get anyone that was a team, anyone that was a fan of that team has to get new gear. You got to get some WFT gear. Right. So if generally having it, having like an interim step, potentially lets you increase money, right? Because you're going to get the new gear when you sell it, and then you're going to get the interim gear for this year, however much that is, right? So generally having some kind of interim stage, I think is a good marketing move. What makes it genius is having a name that's basically the worst possible dumb name you could think of, right? The Washington football team is going to be the single biggest way you could maximize sales because everybody is going to buy that for a joke, right? If you had just called yourself one year of, right. If you had had one year where it was just Washington, nobody would have cared, but because you put Washington football team, it's so ridiculous. You're going to have a ton of people that buy that for the comedic value that would never have thought about buying it before. So you've like maximized the amount of money you could make. You're A, getting two waves of merchandise sales and B, you've maximized the middle one by having a comedy name as opposed to just a generic placeholder. Oh, I could buy that. I could buy all that. I mean, obviously they couldn't just make a name. They couldn't just, you don't have enough time to get the new name. Right. So you but have to have some just, sort of trend. They could have just put Washington and, and dumped, True. like a dump the logo mascot thing, right? So you and think I contend, I contend that having a ridiculous, like, inserted name, having a Rob, having the Rob Lowe of names in your as your uh, franchise is the way to maximize the revenue for this year. 
an organization known for their great decision making made a great decision. Is that what you're saying? I, I plead the fifth. Plead over here as well. Um, no, I think that's uh, that's a fair uh, genius call. AFC East podcast, though. I, I like your tangents. They're good. You're right. Washington football team. I'll buy some of their gear. I'm try, tried to get in touch with some of my contacts there. I need some gear sent over here. I need some WFT stuff. I was so since since you said you love the tangents, I can't. Even, I need. I need to fact check this because it sounds so absurd that I can't even believe that it's true. You know this idea of pleading the fifth, right? You take the fifth because it's the right to not incriminate yourself with your answer, right? Yes. So you plead the fifth, therefore you don't have to get stuck. So apparently it's like a tactic from law enforcement that if you give somebody immunity from the thing that they were going to incriminate themselves to, you are functionally no longer allowed to plead the fifth because you can't incriminate yourself to a charge you've already been let off, essentially. So what they will do is be like, if they want an answer to this thing, they give you immunity to the thing that you're about to incriminate yourself to, and then you cannot take the fifth. I, I heard this in a documentary or something, and it sounded so absurd at the time. So once honestly, you took immunity. Once immunity is offered to you, not even that you took it, once really? it's offered to you, you can't plead the fifth because you can't, you can't incriminate yourself to something that's being essentially dropped that you're immune to prosecution over. Now, I... But if you take immunity, then you're fine. Yeah, but you would. But the point is, you would then have to like. Stop what they do questions. is, what they because a lot of the times in like mafia cases or whatever, they plead the fifth so they don't have to like incriminate not just themselves but like the boss. Yeah. So they're like, well, I want to stop them pleading the fifth so that the boss gets off. So we ought, we just give them immunity. Now they can't take the like. You know what I mean? So they basically yeah. stop them covering up for other people by giving them immunity but it's i and i like i've meant to fact check it at the time and haven't gotten around to it but it seems so absurd for Come that on, to don't be bring your tangent unless it's been fact checked it Come must on. like it must be that you have to actually accept it right it can't just be them offering it to you renders the fifth null and void you have to it has to be that you accept it and then it's null and void i prefer to just talk and then let our listeners fact check us well check as, us. I'm as sure a somebody will. as a natural american it feels like you should have uh you should have knowledge of this no i'm just an interloper that. into this country this is your place oh uh, you're an american now you've got the you the card that's no, no, no i, I am a permanent resident i am not yet an american that's down still, the line still can't believe we're letting you stay all right let's get back to the buffalo bills here <laughs> so uh, the receivers are good already. the receivers are good the offensive yeah. line's reasonable enough. Mm-hmm. They're running backs, Devin Singletary and Zach Moss. They're not complete clones because you could say Zach Moss is a Kareem Hunt's clone. Like he's close to a lot of other guys, but both guys very similar in that they're not big play dynamic players, but boy, do they make people miss and they made people miss quite a bit in college. So that's where Singletary and Moss, they're two of the three best running backs in just missed tackles per touch, essentially that we've seen coming out of college yeah. and they both run in the four sixes. So they're very similar in that regard. They also have TJ Yeldon there, but I think, and then you have Josh Allen. So they have an offense between the three. Josh Allen the running back. Ooh, did I do that? Oof. I didn't, but I was, wait, you, I could see how you might think that it's hmm. like mix. It's like missing the Oxford comma there. Then it just combined them. Um, so if you look at their offense, Three tough receivers to cover. John Brown, Stephon Diggs, Cole Beasley, all with three unique skill sets. 
throw in Isaiah McKenzie, their Jets weak dude, and all right, there's four unique skill sets. Maybe a fourth, a fifth guy emerges. Two running backs that are tough to tackle. Dawson Knox, an emerging somewhat athletic tight end, and then a big athletic tight end in Josh Allen, who also plays quarterback. You didn't catch that one. Who plays quarterback? Wow, he's kidding. tough to tackle. Great scrambler. He's going to have open dudes to throw to. This is a difficult offense to defend. You didn't even mention your favorite rugby player. Who did I miss? Can you even can, looking at their depth chart now? Can you even pick the rugby player out of the lineup? Who Becker? Christian <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Wade. There you go. You got there. Christian oh. Wade. I looked at he was some the guy sort that, of like it was like Becker his first felt carry. like he, Becker felt like some sort of Australian yeah. rugby player or something that I did. It, it was like uh, I think it was Wade's first carry right in the preseason. He we rattled off like a forty-five yard touchdown. Um, All right, stay on point now. Here I am. Yeah. He's uh, he's had that like you know exemption. They get the sort of uh, the international guys to get X number of practice squad spots. I think, and mm-hmm. he's had that exemption the whole time. So he's been learning running back the whole way it'd be interesting to see if he sticks on the roster this time because the guy's got legit speed and clearly game-breaking talent um I, by the way i'm just looking at the quarterback depth chart i love this you have josh allen cannon for an arm some accuracy issues then you have matt barkley it's ridiculous no arm yeah and you know he's, he's actually played some decent football at times throughout his career then you have davis webb mm-hmm. big arm no clue where it's going then you have jake Fromm, right no arm accurate pretty good decision maker it's awesome i love it it's like you know the the it's like people that you know they don't see color there's no like there's no racial bias there the bills are that thing except with arm strength well i don't see arm strength i don't see i, I just I'll see take, i just see mental processing i i don't care how fast the, the ball comes out of his arm i don't care how how hard he can I'll throw take all it. those guys it's it's just I, I, don't, I don't see arm strength i just see uh processing ability and accuracy Here's what I like about the Bills offense as well. I think they're really good. I don't know how much this is worth, but I think they're really good just like on the edges of the roster. So guys like Lee Smith at tight end, the dude who catches like three passes a year, (laughs) a legitimate run blocking tight end, Tyler Croft, a pretty good run blocking tight end. So like when you're filling out your roster, how you want to have a guy that can run block a tight end. Like you kind of just want to have like the Bills have two of those guys. How amazing is it in today's NFL? In the NFL of 2020, there is still a roster spot available for a Lee Smith. Yeah, I mean, I get it, though, because you still want to run the ball at some point. I mean, teams still want to run the ball at some point, no matter what we tell them. Well, this so is if you're addition, going to, yeah, this you is want in addition to like a legitimate fullback. Like they have a Patrick DeMarco. Yeah. It just feels like, it, I mean, if you're going to have, if you're going to have, like, what is the point of a blocking tight end in today's NFL above a sixth offensive lineman? Now that's, that's a fair question. And we already talked about the depth that they have at, uh, at offensive line. They, they apparently like right. Ryan Bates quite a bit. He's a second year undrafted player. Um, initially started with the Eagles was okay last year, especially in the run game. Um, I just, I think their depth is really good. Say what you want about it, whether or not you need a run blocking tight end. Like they have one, they have a fullback, they have a fourth and fifth receiver that can, that can do some stuff on the field. I think they've got some depth on offense. So all that said, it comes down to Josh Allen throwing the ball. Yes. And that's going to be huge. I mean, that's it. He's got, I think he could have a year (laughs) where he doesn't really improve as a quarterback, but he has better stats because of all this around him. Do you know how many routes 
Lee Smith ran last season? 42. 64. Up from 49 the previous season with Oakland. So It's like 200 run blocking snaps, right? Uh, yes, 205. My question would be, like, are you seriously telling me that there is a dramatic gain from the 64 times Lee Smith runs a route that he warrants a roster, a roster spot over, not over, but in addition to a tie in Secchi. Like you're telling me there's that much of a difference between the 64 times Lee Smith runs a pass pattern versus 64 times Ty and Secchi would have to run off the line that it's worth like carrying him on the roster. Lee and Smith is bringing an extra, he's, he's bringing a safety down in the box. You know, like you Secchi like, might bring an extra linebacker on the field. <laughs> You're telling me they're covering Lee Smith with a DB? No. Um, or if I tackle as it is. That's what I'm saying. So he probably – he he's not going to block as well as Ty and Secchi. So you're missing out you don't know at least that. something. He's a, he's a tackle. On the, 200 and, the 280 snaps he's blocking. And you have to offset that on the 64 times you want him to run some kind of pass pattern. Sam, stay on point. I'm on point. I'm, I've come to the conclusion that blocking genuine blocking tight ends right now are a waste of a roster spot. They're ben right Hansel. up there with the ben Chad Hansel. Hennies in terms of coaching. There should be coaches. There's no purpose for that guy being on the roster. Bless him. Bless Lee Smith. I love the guy. He's funny. Look, I love it. I just love looking at, hey, they got a blocky tight end. That's they got a, waste a fullback, of a roster spot. wide receiver four. We're getting into the weeds here. Let's talk about the defense. Then we'll circle back to the Josh Allen discussion. All right. Defensively. I don't, they don't have a dynamic threat on the defensive line, but they've got some depth. Jerry Hughes has led the team in pressures every year since he got there in 2013. That was fascinating to me when I saw it. Not be, it, In part because Jerry Hughes has been incredibly consistent and because he's been like without a running mate for a couple of years as far as pure um, name value goes. But the way they're going to stitch this together with Mario Addison coming over from Carolina, A.J. Epinesa, second-round pick, uh, Quentin Jefferson coming in, from Seattle. Trent Murphy's there. I mean, they got all these guys. Vernon Baller comes in from Carolina. And then the guy that they need is Ed Oliver last year's yeah. first round pick to kind of just take that, take that next step. But I think they're one of the defensive lines. that's going to roll eight deep. Harrison Phillips comes in, plays the run pretty well. They've got like eight legitimate guys that are going to rotate in and out there. Jerry Hughes being the best pass rusher. It's solid, but you, you need like Epinesa to really step up Ed Oliver to step. You need one of those guys to step up and add a, a more consistent threat rushing the passer. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that undersells Jerry Hughes in terms of being a legit, you know, top-end threat. Um, last year wasn't a great grade from him, but the year before he had a PFF pass rushing grade of 90. And as you said, he's been this consistent um, dominant edge rusher for them the whole way. I think he is still an elite pass rushing threat for them. The, the problem is, as he said, they basically haven't had anyone else for his entire time there. You know, even the guys, they call it, he caught the tail end of Kyle Williams career, you know, when he wasn't the force that he was earlier in his career. Um, and they, they just couldn't pa uh, partner him with anybody that was a plus pass rusher in particular. Um, the, yeah. The two players I think that really intrigue me are one, what does Ed Oliver do this year? Does he develop into this pass rushing threat that his athleticism says he should be, um, he's flashed that ability, but he, you know, he drew all these comparisons to Aaron Donald coming out because undersized guy, freaky athlete, but there's more to 
you know, there's more to Aaron Donald than just being small and a freaky athlete. Like he was also yes. one of the most developed pass rushers to come out in Hand years. usage. Incredible. Right. It was absurd. And Ed Oliver didn't have that. And he didn't, you know, not only did he not have that, but he didn't even have the alignment advantages that Aaron Donald had in college in terms of being deployed the right way to be a plus pass rusher. So it was always going to be a work in progress. So where is that progress this year? I think that's one of the big questions for this Buffalo defensive front. And then what AJ FNS ends up being is another intriguing thing, right? Because he's this sort of really dominant college edge who was basically prohibitively bad in terms of testing and athleticism and measurables to play like a legitimate edge at the next level. So does he, what does his role end up looking like? Does he get kicked in permanently to an interior position? Does he become the power edge that they were never quite able to get from, um, help me out, name? Shaq Lawson. There you go. From Shaq Lawson. You know, what does Epines end up being? Can he be like a plus addition right out of the gate? Uh, those are, I think, are the two big question marks from this front. I love Epinesa. I loved watching him. He did remind me of Trey Flowers. Um, don't forget Trey Flowers, former Patriot and Lion, current Lion, um, only played four snaps. His rookie season was injured and it took him, a, you know, I mean, because of the injury, it took him a while. But once he got going, Trey Flowers was an edge by name who did move up and down the defensive line, played a lot of nose tackle snaps, beats up on centers. Epinesa has hands like cinder blocks. Like he could, he could beat up some offensive linemen with hand usage and all that stuff. So, um, I am interested to see him and Oliver, you know, they're, they're the keys, I think, complimenting Hughes as Hughes gets older. Now the back seven again is where I think the bills win. Everybody loves Tremaine Edmonds because he picks up a lot of tackles. He also missed quite a few tackles last year. Matt Milano was a top five, top six coverage linebacker last year. People don't realize that as much. And those guys are deployed in creative ways. They got to cover backs. They got to play zone. They got to do a lot of things. It's an athletic like Milano covers. Well, Edmonds has a really good athleticism and length. Like that's a solid, it's a solid group. AJ Klein's in there now, but it's really an Edmonds and Milano show. And then what they've done in the back, the only name that is a star is Tredavious white, who is, you know, he's fantastic. He got beat more than, you know, people wanted to admit last year, but white's fantastic. And then since over the last three years, Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde, like that was one of the more underrated moves in the NFL a few years ago, getting Poyer in here, getting Hyde in here. And that entire Sean McDermott tree fans have asked us this before about like which position groups just kind of like, not, not that they're easier, but they just always Panthers safeties were always grading. Well, hmm. when McDermott was over there and he's carried that over to the bills, he gets the easier. most out of safeties. It's easier. There, there's, you know, I don't think you have to hide from that. It's not a, it's not necessarily a, I'm not saying, I don't know that this role is necessary. There are other positions that are easier, like right ta- playing right tackle for Kyle Shanahan. They always grade well. Like yeah. there are certain positions. These guys still have a lot on their plate. They just, they execute it really well they and they run, they're more interchangeable the way they work and all that stuff. So I think it's, it's a nice group. They have a lot on their plate, but it's, it's easier than trying to be Earl Thomas in a Seattle defense. It just is like, it's not a, like, it's not a bad thing. Those guys are fantastic at it, but they, they are in an excellent system to help them look good. Um, and it's, you know, it's a symbiotic thing. They make that defense look good and the defense makes them look good. So the interesting thing to me is going to be the other cornerback spot. Levi Wallace to me feels like a guy that's going to start for 10 years and have a competition for his job every off season. You know what I mean? Who's that? 
Levi Wallace. Yeah, yeah. He's, He's going to spend 10 years as a starter, and every single year they're going to try and replace him. Um, and it's already happened twice. Like, now Josh Norman comes Kevin in. Kevin Johnson and Josh Norman. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, yeah, so Josh Norman comes in, has experience in this coaching system. That was where he had his one elite year in Carolina. He's not that guy anymore. So, so I also think for one year, $6 million, though, well worth sure. a shot just oh, in yeah. case. Just in I, case. I don't have a problem with it. I'm just saying that if you're bringing this guy in saying, hey, I saw him be elite in our system a few years ago, he's going to take the job from Levi Wallace and that's a starting corner. I don't think it's going to play out that way. I think you put those two guys in an equal footing. Levi Wallace is a better player right now. Um, Wallace, yeah, I mean, he's just this classic overachiever. Right, that guy's story is insane. He's like still only a few years away from playing like intramural flag football. Walks on to Alabama, goes undrafted, ends up starting, goes undrafted, wins the starting job from being undrafted, and then as you say, like sequentially every year is just going to be they're trying to replace him. But he's good. Like he's not a bad player. He's you know he's probably got a, a level. Like he's never going to be. He's never going to be as good as Tredavious White, but he can, like, in the same way Troy Hill can be a really good number two if Jalen Ramsey is your number one, Levi Wallace can be a really good number two if Tredavious White is your number one. As a former flag football champion, intramural champion, I can relate to Levi Wallace. That's it. You could not be further away from Levi Wallace's body type if – yeah, but we're both intramural flag football champions. You outweigh him by like 120 pounds. That's fine. It's like he's on the same team as, you know, Vernon Butler. They can relate to each other. They're teammates. They're you're, just, like, you know. you're like a whole extra woman in, ter- in terms of size on top of what oh, Levi geez. Wallace is. Sam, stay on track here. I'm just trying to say I can relate to the intramural <laughs> champion. Got to relate everything to me. Yeah. Of course. That's that's, that's my shtick here in season nine of the PFF NFL podcast. So here's the deal with the defense. Three straight years of top 10 coverage grades. We always talk about coverage is not stable. Let's do best case and worst case for these teams. Okay. The worst case scenario for the Bills is they've run out of, they've run out of steam working with just a whole bunch of pretty good players, right? With one star on defense, solid across the board, coverage is going to regress, and they're not going to be nearly as good as we thought defensively, even though they've had three years of success within this system with a lot of these same players. That would be the worst-case scenario for the defense for the Bills, right? And then the best-case scenario is, you know, they, a lot of these guys come together. It's a depth-driven team. And, you know, they're solid again. They're, they're one of the most difficult teams to pass against, which keeps them in every game. Um, but there is a possibility that they just simply regress defensively because posting four straight top 10 coverage grades is really difficult no matter who you have on the team. It's just a really difficult thing to do. So there is a chance that they regress defensively, Sam. There but, is. Uh, you know, they, on paper, they look like a pretty good unit. Yeah, um, agreed. So... Um, do you want to circle back to Josh Allen? Oh, yes. Here, here's the question I was posed on recent Buffalo radio. Do you think this year they'll be more aggressive? Um, will they not be as content to win 20 to 17 than they were previously? And my point was, I don't think they're choosing to win 20 to 17. That was the nature of their team. They were, 
they're limited by their quarterback offensively, so they've had to rely on their defense. They did a really nice job last year, and our guy Kev Cole uh, wrote about this last year. They did a really nice job of play calling uh, to give Josh Allen a chance to succeed, to th- you know, throwing on early downs. The worst thing you can do if you don't trust your quarterback, and I'm not saying the Bills don't, but the worst thing you can do if you don't have a top three quarterback or whatever is to just say run, run, pass. We're going to protect him by running, running, and then it's 38, 39. You got to convert those all day. The best thing you can do is actually pass early, early downs, spread it out, run play action, mix it up, screens, do the whole deal. They've done a really nice job of that in Buffalo. A lot more open throws. Josh Allen's success up to 20 yards was much improved last year, aided in by the fact that John Brown starts, he's open at the intermediate level. He's been a top 15 receiver at the 10 to 19 yard level. Cole Beasley has gotten open. He's had a higher percentage of open targets as any receiver, highest percentage over the last two years, Cole Beasley. It's easier from the slot, but he's the guy, number one. So you're making life better for your quarterback. I love that. So all that said, what does Josh Allen do this year? Give me a Josh Allen prediction. You look like you're hard at work over there too. I can't wait to see what what you're whipping up. Yeah, I'm trying to load up something, but I need to remember my password on the fly to do that. That's <laughs> the problem, apparently. Okay, Weddle. That's um, well, no, yeah, let's not go. Let's not go there. Did we talk um, about that, that now that he's retired? Sure. We used to get like constant emails that Eric Weddle couldn't remember his password to PFF. And the thing is, we were like resetting don't his password. The, don't tell him what the what the password was, but I'm like, well, it'll change by now. But we were like easy. resetting it to like his name. You know, like we weren't, we weren't making it hard for him to get in. And yet we were still getting a fairly regular email that he forgot. Great safety. Always in the right position on the football field. Passwords. Not so much. Look, he had all his mental runtime dedicated to like the defense. He didn't have time to remember like his name. He's a big yeah. save my password auto login guy. Well, that's what I'm saying, Never right? So if it doesn't, if it didn't remember it, like the, the browser hasn't remembered it. I don't know what the hell it was. So. Hmm. Uh, do you want to get, what's your, what's your prediction for Josh Allen this year? What do we see from him? Statistically I, grading wise, does he take a next step? Are our bills fans disappointed and they're looking for a new guy at the end of the year? Like what, what do you think happens? Well, so here's the thing, right? There's like, there's, there's one that to him. Yeah. There's, there's, there's two things. There's what happens to him and there's where the perception is. So I do think he takes a step forward. Um, I don't know that it's going to be a big step forward. And that's the the problem, right? So I think he will get a little bit better. I think he's gotten a little bit better last year. The big thing to me is whether he sorts out this deep ball thing um, because he's such a weird breakdown in terms of what he does. So one, you can disregard the freaky athleticism and rushing skill that he brings, right? Yep. Now you can- That raises dis- his floor. That raises his floor. Yeah, but on the other hand, you can also dispute how valuable that is, Right. So he, everyone, you know, you add up his scrambling yardage and just add it into the offense, right? It doesn't quite work like that because they're not equal plays. So his rushing attempts in total had a negative EPA. So effectively, even like if you said all of his rush attempts put together, they got further away from scoring than they did if he hadn't done it at all ever. If he just passed the ball instead, instead of taking off and running, they'd have been better off. Right. That's basically what that is telling you. Now, it doesn't it, it doesn't quite work like that. Right. It's more complicated. There's more facets in that. But this idea that, you know, he adds 500 rushing yards or whatever. Therefore, he's X percent high. Like It doesn't it's not necessarily so. So 
the rushing, it is a factor, and he can make spectacular plays here and there. But it, it would be, I think, a mistake to fall into the trap of the idea of, well, he makes these spectacular plays, therefore all of his rushing is a net win, and it's positive, right? Because a lot of that is plays that he should be making through the air with his arm and doesn't. Secondly, he has an absurdly high rate, or not? he has an absurdly high number of ridiculously high degree of accuracy and high degree of difficulty intermediate passes right good accuracy there's a ton of these bills accounts out there you know throwing these highlights of josh allen just making sick play here and there the nobody's ever doubted that those are in his game right the guy has that's why he was drafted where he was right he's got the ability to make these insane plays and he certainly made more of them last year than he did this than he did as a rookie the problem is the bad right and for him the bad last year was very specific it was anything deep was a disaster and he has the worst touch of a deep pass I've seen in a long time from a quarterback, maybe ever. It, that is not that hard. It really isn't. Like, of all the things to do as a quarterback, just putting a bit of air under the ball when you're throwing deep should not be the hardest thing in the world to achieve. You know, there are, there are quarterbacks without the same world of arm talent that Josh Allen has that understand that if – them, if they're going to complete a deep pass, the best thing they can do is put as much air under it as possible and let their receiver do the work. For some reason, he hasn't worked that out yet. Or if it has worked it out, he keeps defaulting back to trying to fire it in there like a laser. That has to change because if it doesn't, the deep pass is the most valuable pass in the NFL. If you can't do that, if you're the worst deep passer in the NFL, you're only ever going to be so good. It just doesn't matter how good you are at everything else. That will be the cap on how good you can be. So I think ultimately, Allen takes a small step forward. I don't know if he can take this seismic leap that we saw from a Lamar Jackson last season. I don't think that's in him, at least certainly not in one go. So I think he gets a little bit better. The little bit better probably makes Bills fans still think he's capable of doing it all. And the other important thing is that the Bills might be significantly better in terms of, you know, winning the division and maybe contending. So, again, the things will be in his favor in terms of perception. A negative EPA thing's real, huh? Yeah. Was you it, thought I was just making it up. Oh, yeah. I thought you screwed something up for sure. I know. I can Good read job. things. No, I'm, I'm proud of you. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think really that I, I think that, me. Live, wasn't, live on the show. Just making sure. Um, I think Josh Allen, um, with the deep passing stuff, again, I think it goes back to he, – he missed some wide-open John Brown passes last year, but I think he'll have more open throws. I think that'll re- positively regress. He'll hit a few more of those. I really – I think Allen has it in him to have one of those years where he's got the 26, 28 passing touchdowns, decent number, another seven or eight on the ground, and at the end of the year, you're like, man, this guy's got a ton of touchdowns. Everything in between might not be that much better, but the touchdowns are there in part by the, by the supporting cast in part, because he's got big playability. He makes a bunch of big time throws still misses a high percentage still, you know, probably, you know, he's got 15 fumbles over the last two years. He's only lost two. It's another reason. It's another reason why bills fans, I think just feel good about, well, Josh Allen takes care of the ball. He doesn't have a ton of interceptions. Hasn't lost a ton of fumbles. He's had fumble luck. He's had interception luck both of those really, really in his favor. So honestly, it could go, 
I think it goes either way extreme. I don't know if we see any middle ground this year. I think the Bills either fall apart with high, high expectations and Josh Allen, the interceptions go the wrong way. The fumbles go the wrong way. He doesn't improve. He misses so many throws, even with more open receivers. And the defense regresses. Or it goes the other way, and, we, and Josh Allen has these really nice stats. He improves a little bit. It, it's, it's still like an uncomfortable. He still misses a few too many throws, but it doesn't matter because you got more open receivers, and it's just, it's just better. You've got better yards after the catch guys. He's got his rushing ability. The defense stays good, and the Bills are right there in the hunt. I, I'm leaning that way. I think they're in the hunt. I would, I would actually pick them to win the AFC East, especially given everything that's happened with New England. Yeah, but there so- is a possibility – that bad stuff happens with Allen and the like given the higher expectations, it could happen. So what I what I think is going to end up happening is that I think the bills will end up. So they, what they won 10 games last year, right? Yeah, I think so. I think we could see them win nine or 10 games again this year. And it feel like a massive disappointment because we thought they were trending in the right direction, but actually what's just happened is that they've sort of hit the wrong end of variance, right? So the fumble swing back, Um, the other thing that's a big, so it, this kind of cuts both ways, right? One, we think this division is theirs to win almost because the Patriots have sort of, they don't have Tom Brady anymore. Half their team has just opted out. You know, the the Patriots are not what they used to be. Suddenly this division is open for the first time in 20 years, but Buffalo strength of schedule is significantly harder this year than it was a year ago. So they won 10 games with a really easy strength of schedule, which is one of the reasons that the Patriots still looked dominant. You know, they, they had it. This Patriots schedule last year was a cakewalk. Um, and the bills had a lot of that as well. So we're expecting them to be so much better because the Patriots aren't in the picture as much this year, but they're about to run into a significantly harder schedule this year than they did a year ago. So again, it's going to feel like a disappointment, right? You're going to lose a couple of those games. We would have, we would have sort of said, you're going to win. I think ultimately the Bills almost end up just spinning their wheels and ending up in the same spot, which to them I think will feel like a disappointment because we expected more. I think that's a fair take, too. They have to play the NFC West, which has three legitimate, four legitimate playoff contenders if you include Arizona. Right. Which I think Seattle, at this point. Seattle, the Rams, um, the 49ers, obviously, and the Cardinals. They have to play the, the AFC West and mm-hmm. the NFC West. So the AFC West has the Chiefs. Uh, the Raiders should be improved. The Chargers are going to be a tough team to play. And the Broncos are going to be a tough team. I mean, they're all yeah. going to be tough teams. Um, you got the Steelers. You have the Titans. Um, and, of course, the AFC East. I'm just saying, there's it'll be a challenge this year, I think, for for Buffalo. I would still probably pick them in the East. Right. I mean, just, um, I mean, even just naming those additional teams, right? Oh, by the way, you also get stuck with the Titans and the Steelers. The Titans and Steelers. Right. Like, man, this is a tough schedule. All right. Let's um, – man – you were talking about trying to squeeze two divisions into one of these podcasts. How long did it take us to get through one? It's Team. your fault. It's always your fault. All right, let's get into the Miami Dolphins. They're next God. in the AFC East. No opt-outs, so that saves us something. No opt-outs to discuss for the Dolphins. Uh, give me your high-level view. Or do you want me to? I'll give you my high-level view. That's how I started with the Bills. Sure. High-level view of the Dolphins roster. Um, we'll get to the quarterback in a second. I love what they did this offseason with the secondary. I love where they uh, moved as far as uh, getting players into the secondary that fit what they want to do. Ultimately, I still think there are questions back there, but man, that was what that there, they have one of the secondaries I could see move up that moves up quickly. 
here's where the concern is when you're going through the position rankings. Offensive line, 32. Yeah. Running backs, 32. I don't, I don't care about running backs that much. But, you know, <laughs> defensive line, 30. Linebackers, 29. Those are their rankings um, just as far as position groups go. So uh, receivers, 26. And we were debating having them even – uh, even lower. It depends on how much you truly believe in Devonte Parker and uh, Albert Wilson bouncing back. The roster still has a lot of work to do, but I like the progress they've made in the secondary. I like the fact that they got Tua in the mix and Ryan Fitzpatrick. If he ends up playing, is coming off the best two two year stretch of his career for whatever that's worth. That could mean that he's just ready to you know wheels fall off because that's what Fitz does mm. every time he starts playing well. But I think that's where the Dolphins are as a roster. Moving in the right direction, but, man, they still have some massive holes. They do. Um, the offensive line, I think, is the biggest one. I mean, last season, we saw four of the worst offensive lines we have ever seen in PFF's grading, and Miami's was the worst. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't get a whole lot better. Like, I mean, they made some changes to it, but like, they still have some pretty horrendous players scheduled to start for them. They have Austin, Austin Jackson, first-round tackle, who, again, we had more as like a late second, third-round yeah. player, uh, and they drafted in the first round. I, I see him struggling early on. He, so he, that's the he's thing. got skills, but like right. it's going to be a transition for him. Even some of the sort of fixes, you know, in air quotes, are not players that you expect to fix that right away. Like if yeah. Austin Jackson coming in and even playing average for an NFL tackle, I think would be in the top 10% of his expected outcomes. Like the chances of that happening, I would say, are extremely remote. Um, so that offensive line is going to be a problem again, a major problem. And at which point, like you have to ask yourself, just, do you even put two out behind that? Or do you just say, hey, Ryan, thanks for what you've done the last couple of years. Your reward is Go. to take a beating for this year because Go we don't want to risk. Again. Yeah, we don't want to risk the young quarterback behind this disaster. Um, the receiving core, I think, could be okay. Like, what, what's amazing about Fitzpatrick is that he's played his best football behind the worst protection he's ever had for two years. Like, yeah. It's not just that he's played the best he's played for two years. It's that he's played it despite the worst pass blocking he's been dealing with. Well, it made more sense with Tampa Bay in 2018 because he was, you know, YOLO ball yeah. Fitzpatrick working with a rookie Godwin and, and Mike Jets, Evans. When he was good then. Uh, yeah, they had Adam Humphreys that year, but they like they had the two they, the two tight ends were still there. They were pretty good. Like he had dudes to throw to in Tampa Bay uh, that particular year. He had the Yolo year with the Jets with Brand, was it Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker, I think, yeah. in 2015. Um, but last year, Yolo Fitzpatrick, you know, creates Devontae Parker into like a contested catch monster and giving him opportunities and everything. They they have Albert Wilson back, who's been a, a yak machine for them. Um, so I don't hate their receiving core as far as like, they've got some decent pieces, but again, you got to compare it to like the rest of the league. Yeah. It's Devonte Parker and Alan Hearns and Albert Wilson and Preston Williams did a nice job last year. He just dropped so many passes. Like they've got some guys that can do some things. Yeah, I mean, some guys that can do some things. The offense I think is it's heading in the right direction. Like it, there's a lot of pieces in that offense that I think could be in a very functional offense. It's just, this feels like one of those offenses where the entire thing is going to be capped by the fact that they might have, again, the worst offensive line in the NFL. And like it, a line that bad is only going to let you be so good. The more interesting thing with the Dolphins, I think, is the defense because that's 
really heading in the right direction. Obviously, they bring in um, Brian, Brian Flores as the head coach from that New England system. He's creating New England South there. And in a way that the, uh, most of the sort of New England um, replicas have been obvious replicas in a sense of flawed and not really as good as the original. This one might not be as good as the original, but I could see a way that this defense suddenly starts to become really quite good. Um, you know, they're loading up yeah. in the right places. They've already had Xavier Howard, obviously on big money. I think Xavier Howard is a little overrated, but again, he's, if he's one of your two top starting corners, that's something you can definitely work with. Byron Jones was the big offseason addition. Um, Noah Igbenogany comes in to add some slot man coverage ability as well. That's Welcome a trio back. that could immediately become like one of the best cornerback trios in football. So um, do you have any concerns with – because I keep I keep touting Xavier Howard and Byron Jones as a nice combo. Do you have any concerns though with how much Miami wants to play man coverage with those two guys? I mean, Xavier Howard, I have concerns because we've always said one week he looks like Richard Sherman, one week he looks like a bad Big Twelve corner. Yeah. That has been the story of his career since the Big Twelve. We were watching film together at the combine with him. We we're like, watch this play, oh, watch this play, right back and forth. And then even in the NFL, week to week, I mean, he has games where his ball skills are incredible, but like he feels like the guy that's better, like sitting in off coverage, staying on top of routes, not necessarily mirroring all the way, especially against better route runners. And Byron Jones has an element of that too. He could press, he's got good movement skills and everything, but I don't know if you want him straight one-on-one -on -one 50, 60 times a game. Well, however, 35, 40 times a game. Right. Um, you you want to mix it up a little bit more. I love it on paper though. And Igbenogany might be that guy. Like he's the one dude he's going to get beat. Cause that's what happens in the slot. But man, he can, he has the ability to stick with say like the Edelman's of the world in man coverage. And you don't want him playing too much zone. So that's like the right pick and the right fit there. I just wonder how much you want these corners play in man coverage. There is certainly an element of playing with fire in there. Um, on, on the other hand though, I think when you start to work out, how much man coverage they're actually playing or how many times you're essentially exposing them to getting burned like that. The numbers start to get pretty small, even just when you start to parse it out. Right. So, you know, an offense is going to have face what 70, 60, 70 snaps a game overall yep. of which 35 are going to be passes of those 35. You're playing man coverage 55% of the time. So that's 17. So 17 of them, you're in man coverage of which how many, you know what I mean? How many of those seven, so basically minimum or maximum 17 times you got to hold up generally, right? Most of those are going to be routes where you're not exposed to being burned anyway. So that gets cut down. You know, you basically just need to survive the couple of plays in a game where you're actually at risk of getting toasted deep. Now, both those guys are capable of not surviving that play. But I, I think what these man coverage teams do, and particularly the non-New England ones, right, the actual replica versions, I think at this point they basically roll the dice that we can hold up, right? We, there's, there's, let's say it's five plays. There's five plays a game that we're basically rolling the dice saying that our guy is going to win. And if he doesn't, it's a big play. Um, that could cost us the game. But if he does... 
we've made life harder for you on the other 35 plays because we played man coverage and it's broadly speaking a tougher and the uh, windows are tighter right it's broadly speaking tougher on your offense so i think particularly a team like miami they're basically saying look we're going to roll the dice that these guys are not going to get exposed on those plays Xavier howard in particular has the potential to go the other way right he'll may get burned but he's also going to catch a ball or two that maybe he shouldn't or that maybe other cornerbacks would it's just you just don't get as many interceptions in pure man coverage. And that's where sure. if you want him to be like Xavier Howard's best bet is to be like a Marcus Peters type, right? Like you get yeah. burned every now and again, but you're, you're going to get five, six, seven interceptions in a given season. And we'll take that because we're, you're turning the ball over. It's just harder to do in the system. I, I don't hate your breakdown there. I'll say the other thing that they do Patriots system, Belichick system, they take their pass rushers, they press tight ends. They you know, right. bump them off their routes. They lean safeties. They do all these different things to kind of like dictate the matchups and say, so all that you were like, you were parsing it out, parsing it out, parsing mm-hmm. it out. They're even going to say, okay, here's this top receiver. We're going to put a safety over the top right. and play him, man. We're going to take him out as well. So that's yeah. one fewer snap. So, you know, there's something to that in Flores. He did some good things in new England, you know, like when he, he did some good things in New England. Also, Matt by Patricia, the way, the I think he's probably shown himself better than Matt Patricia yeah. to this point. Also, by the way, the quarterback has to find it even when you get beat, right? Think of the number of yeah, plays absolutely. where you see a guy get killed in man coverage off the ball, and it never goes that way, right? The quarterback just doesn't see it. It's not, it's not his first read. You know, whatever. The ball's gone somewhere else. You know, you've got five plays that you may be exposed to. You may, you may lose one of them, and if the quarterback doesn't see it, it didn't happen. You know, it didn't cost right. you anything. So I think generally, yeah, it's a risk, but I think a scheme like this has embraced that risk and decided that it's a net win. Let me tell you one other thing I love about the secondary. There are two projected starting safeties for whatever it's worth. Eric Rowe, Bobby McCain are two former corners. I just love this as a concept. Give me the corners that, you know, move to safety. I thought Eric Rowe, when he came out, he did play safety at Utah for a little bit, then moved to corner. He reminded me a little bit of, uh, Devin McCourty as a player who was like just you know solid and safe and didn't miss a ton of tackles in college hasn't been that guy really in the NFL but he's had to play a lot of corner um, yeah. and Devin McCourty had a good year at corner and a bad year at corner and then moved to safety and became a pretty good player so I like the concept of Rowe playing more safety he did a little bit last year McCain former slot guy playing safety that adds so much versatility to the defense and then in the third round they drafted Brandon Jones the big safety who just you know can cover tight ends uh, pretty well. He's got that one skill set. They have a lot of those Patriots like players who just do one thing really well. And I really am looking forward to seeing how that, you know, gets deployed and how that works. They add Kyle Van Noy in there. Who's been the hybrid player for new England. Um, Christian Wilkins. He's their first round pick that they need a better pass rush from, uh, you know, from last year. He does. He was kind of like at Oliver for them. Shaq Lawson goes from Buffalo to, to Miami to be their power. end. so they have some interesting pieces that I think could improve their D. I think you just made a great point that I hadn't even considered before about this Miami team, but they have a ton of players that are very, very specific in terms of what they do well. And the flip side of that, the implication being there's stuff they don't do well. Right. But what makes that new England system so unique is that nobody in the NFL is better than Belichick at putting players in a position to enhance what they do well and to hide what they don't do well or not ask them to do things that they don't do well. And I think that's one of the major things that separates his defense 
from all the disciple versions, all the replicas that go off somewhere else. This will be an interesting test to see if Flores has that trait. If right. he can take these guys that are, you know, flawed diamonds, that are players that are very, very good at specific things and not very good at other things and make use of that the same way that Belichick has been able to for years. If he can, suddenly you have this Patriots level weapon in terms of an advantage when it comes to, you know, player acquisition, a defense that's better than it looks like it should be and all those kinds of things. Uh, they're, they're another team. If you just look at, you know, PFF concepts, the teams that have uh, a much better secondary than they had, than they do defensive line. So for instance, we have the Ravens with the number one secondary 17th in defensive line. We have the Patriots annually. This is their rankings third in the second, third in the secondary 25th on the defensive line. That's actually like where they've been ranking in their last few Super Bowl uh, champion teams. As far as coverage versus pass rush, you have the Seahawks, who are like the epitome of we're way better in the back ends than we are up front. The Dolphins are one of those teams. Uh, the Bills are actually one of those teams too. After we just talked to them, the Dolphins are one of those teams that's done a better job building in the back end than they have in the front as far as pass rush ability goes. Again, they've got they've got some role players up front, but like who's your top pass rusher? Is it Van Noy? Like he just by the way, Van Noy played linebacker more his first couple years in new England. He played more pure pass rusher last year. He did a much better job. He did a really nice job rushing the quarterback and, but like, he's your best pass rusher. Shaq Lawson, not great. Christian Wilkins, not great. They have a whole bunch of run first type of players, which is another new England trait. They bring in Landon Roberts, run stopping linebacker, break one McMillan run stopping linebacker. Don't trust those guys in coverage. But to your point, if you just protect them enough throughout the game, you don't have to expose them. Yeah, and it also brings – it makes players like Curtis Weaver fascinating, right? Ooh, yeah. Curtis Weaver goes to most teams. You're like, you know, if they just try and make him into a conventional – like he, he's not a usual – he's not a normal – he's not a conventional body type, conventional style of player, right? He probably needs a specific thing working for him. So you go to the Dolphins or the Patriots, it's like, all right, now that becomes interesting because Weaver was ridiculously productive as a pass rusher. But, you know, the guy's got, got himself a bit of a gut, doesn't look, you know, the most <laughs> spectacular athlete in the world. So there's a lot of Lamar teams, Houston right, teams shy away from that. The guy goes in the fifth round. But in the right system, like those are the kinds of players, if you're prepared to, to focus on what he does well and not ask him to do the things he doesn't, you find diamonds doing that. So look, I think I think there's so many good stories. I can't wait. I hope the NFL happens. I can't wait to watch yes. the season because the storylines are just fantastic. I really want to see how this Dolphins defense comes together. Year two, Brian Flores, and um, all these new pieces there. So offensively, yeah. Circle back to the enough? no. Well, what yeah, do you want no. to circle back to? The, the offensive line is going to be their problem on offense. The thing I wanted to circle back to is when do we see Tua? Because the guy's cl- the yeah. guy's clear now, but I don't want him anywhere near that offensive line. But you don't sit a first, a top ten pick for <laughs> any extended period of time in today's NFL. I don't know if the Dolphins believe their offensive line is that bad because they they they, they drafted Austin Jackson in the first. Sure, he's a rookie, but they drafted him in the first. They brought in Ted Karras from New England. He had a sol- he's only started for one year in his career. He was solid last year. Yeah. It's New England. It's Brady. Quick passing, whatever. But he was solid last year. They paid Jesse Davis to come back and play football. He was their best lineman last year. He hasn't graded above 60. 
yeah. the right tackle. But I think they think they're okay. So I don't know that Miami looks at their offensive line and says, well, we've got the worst offensive line in the league. How can we do this? We do. I don't think that they do based off of right tackle investment, first round investment, Ted Karras coming in. And yeah, I, I think they know that it's a weakness, but I don't know that they're like, man, this is impossible for Tua. Uh, so I think it's one of those, like you give Fitz a couple weeks and then it's Tua. And I think that's mostly because of the practice time. I think that's what we see. Yeah. I mean, I get, I, I believe it. I mean, I, I believe it for no other reason than these, this plan of like everyone comes in with the intention, not everyone, but a lot of people come in with the intention of sitting the, the first round rookie and it always goes to hell by like week three. I'm, so I'm going to, it's amazing. What's amazing. To, sorry. What's amazing to me is that the one time in recent memory where that hasn't been true, it's been with Patrick Mahomes, who may be the greatest quarterback the game has ever seen. Right. Like the one guy that they actually managed to keep on the bench for a year was maybe the greatest score, like was an MVP right out of the box. Oh, and man. yet somehow and we, and we were Smith, calling for him that yeah. year. Like Alex Smith is doing really well, but still bring in Mahomes. And this like that might have I honestly think that their plan, this might have been the one instance where their plan, I think, was to actually put him in. And it went the other way, like. Usually the circumstance dictates that the plan to sit the guy has to be thrown out and we have to bring him in, right? The Blake Bortles, Chad Henney thing. In an ideal world, we wanted to sit Blake Bortles all season long, but Chad Henney is Chad Henney. Chad Henney happens. And there's only so many weeks you can take that before you just snap and you have to throw out somebody else. Anybody else, it doesn't matter. Just Chad Henney cannot throw the football again for this team. Um, whereas with Mahomes, it was like, all right, we've got Alex Smith. We know that's a good solid starting point. We'll give Mahomes you know, six weeks, six weeks on the bench, and then we'll bring him in and he'll be a superstar. Only six weeks in, like Alex Smith is playing out of his freaking mind, leading the NFL in passer rating, and is just playing so well that you can't sit him down. Even though you know, or they thought they had what they had, which is an MVP in waiting. Here's, here's I'm going to use the same take I had in 2018. Jameis Winston was suspended. Ryan Fitzpatrick got to start the first few games. Yeah. Those first few games could be the Dolphins look like Super Bowl contenders or the Dolphins are 0-3, 0-4, like it's two at time. That's, that's, the Fitz, that's the Fitz magic right there. Because if you do give him a few games to start, he could go off like he did in 20. That's what he did in 2018. You're like, this is the best quarterback in the NFL right now. He's going head-to-head with Drew Brees. He's completing 80% of his passes and chucking them down the field. Like, that could happen or it could yeah. go the other way. Fitz yeah. played really well last year. Again, given the offensive line circumstances, the lack of weapons played, played football pretty well, but the range of outcomes with Fitz is all over the place. Miami agrees with him. Don't you think like the city, the vibe, it's, it's a good Fitz vibe. Miami oh, magic, good, yeah. the beard. Absolutely. I think he suits I it. it. I think he's done a great job there. He's done a great job. So I say two is like week three, week four, you give him some time. The lack of, the lack of preseason reps, man, it really, yeah. if we didn't have preseason last year, remember when Dan Orlovsky like apologized for to Daniel Jones? Sorry, man. I didn't think you were good, but I just saw these 22 preseason throws. You're awesome. Like he apologized for his take on Daniel Jones leading into the season. Nobody can apologize for not believing in uh, any uh, Justin Herbert, for instance, we won't be able to see it. Yeah. But it does just mean that like three passes into their NFL career, it's going to happen. I know. Well, sorry. Just, my point is it's a lot easier for Daniel Jones to look awesome in the preseason that than it was true. 
in the NFL. Um, so we don't have the preseason overreaction. But I think the lack of preseason reps is yeah. is a challenge. I, mean, so, I think it's definitely going to lead to some coaches being conservative with personnel decisions. So let's go, not even best case, worst case, but like, what do you think Dolphins fans should be looking for this season? What 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 constitutes a good? We're moving in the right direction season because I think it's fair to say we're still in the middle of the rebuild here. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I think they're battling the same things that we just talked about with Buffalo. Their sched- this division schedule gets harder this year than it was a year ago, yeah. right? So they're battling with the same deal. They have a tougher schedule. They play the same teams we just talked about. They're going to have a really tough battle in a lot of those games. So I think you have to start looking at this from a performance point of view as opposed to a wins and losses point of view. Um, look at the defense. Is it taking the steps that we just talked about? Are they putting these guys in the position to succeed? Are, does it look like Brian Flores has that Bill Belichick ability to to play to his player strengths and to minimize their weaknesses? That's huge. The offense, is that offensive line a complete shit show or does it have the ability to actually protect the quarterback for more than two seconds? Um, if it is, we're in business. And I'd say Tua. When he gets out there, does he look like? Sure. Does he have star power immediately? Right. Is it a challenge? Does the arm strength look like an issue? A guy, Trent Dilfer swears by his arm, but I also swear that I haven't seen him throw with incredible zip other than a, a handful of times. I don't know if that's by design or not. Sure. Sometimes you just sometimes it just doesn't look right from an right. arm strength standpoint immediately uh, at the NFL level. I'll be, I'll be interested to see that. I think it'll, I think he'll be fine, but I'm just. He either looks like he might look like a star right away or it just might take some time. Right. And he's an interesting one because, you know, the the quarterback position now has become this instant gratification. You know, when you see it and two was that guy in college, right? Like he came in literally first, first exposure, essentially replacing Jalen hurts in a national title game. Everything changed. Just looked different immediately. Um, so that's been him at the college level. Can he do it again at the NFL level? And then the other thing is, was that Devontae Parker year a blip, or is that yeah. him? Yeah, that'll be huge, I think, for the Dolphins. Um, I think they'll be a tough team to play. I think they'll be solid. But, yeah, I think, to your point, I, my, my cop-out, because I'm trying to skew positive for all 32 teams here, my cop-out for a lot of these teams is going to be, oh, they're way better, but they're going to win, like, six games. Just, you know, you won't see it. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think I think this is the division where that is going to be the case for all of them is that like, look, this division had one of the easiest schedules in the NFL last year. Right. As a division. And some teams were were even easier when you add it in and they're they're out of division, out of conference games or whatever. Um, This year across the board, it's getting harder. So every single one of these teams has a harder gig in 2020 than they had in 2019 just because their schedule is getting tougher. So whatever, however much better you think you are than you were a season ago, you have to take a bit off because it's just, it's going to be a tougher road to hoe. Ho, Hugh, what's that? What is the, I don't even know what the phrase is. Tougher road to, I don't know. Someone to will use, tell me. To use garden tools on. Yes. I think that's the end of the phrase. All right, only two more teams to get through, Sam. What is going – we're just – if you missed last week's podcast, don't worry. We rolled all three into one. That's what we're doing here. Okay. It's three podcasts in one. New England Patriots. The New England – Damn it. It is – it's, 
it's it's a tougher it's tougher to hoe is the right phrase, but it's not road, it's row. The bit that I thought the bit that I thought I had wrong I had right, and the bit that I thought I had right I had wrong. That's two times in a row. Tougher row to hoe. Row. Two times in a row. That's what I was trying to say. Misspelled segue first. The New England Patriots already had a ton of turnover. Now, as of recording time, the opt-outs include safety. Safety, Patrick Chung, linebacker, Dante Hightower, running back, Brandon Bolden, offensive tackle, starting right tackle, that is, Marcus Cannon, starting fullback, Danny Vitale, uh, Najee Tehran, offensive lineman, with zero offensive snaps last year, Marquise Lee, wide receiver, and then tight end, Matt Lacoste. So, New England, by far, leading the league in opt-outs. They also just have plenty of turnover on the defensive side of the ball. We have seen, let's see all there. Obviously, Tom Brady is mm. gone. But we mentioned Kyle Van Noy going to Miami. Jamie Collins goes to Detroit. Danny Shelton's gone. Ted Karras is in Miami. Deron Harmon is in Detroit. They all went to Miami or Detroit, <laughs> basically. Um, yes. And Brady went to Tampa Bay. So there's a lot of turnover at key positions. So we're looking at a completely different world in New England. It really how, is. How different? Let me just ask you this. If Jarrett Stidham's the quarterback versus Cam Newton, how different is your projection for New England? Not that different. I mean, like for for me, so, it's okay. ma- for me, it's massive. I think. I think with Jarrett Stidham as quarterback, they are a bad team. I think with Cam Newton a quarterback, as is, they are an average team. That's significant, though. I mean, it's significant, but it's not like, see, I, my problem with the Cam Newton thing, right, is everyone's, everyone labels him as a, an MVP. Like 2015 Cam Newton was an MVP. 2020 yeah, Cam MVP? Newton is not. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's, he's an MVP well, no in the same year. Way. Was he close to MVP? Right. But it's not like it's, it, does, it shouldn't work the way presidents work, right? You, you're not an MVP forever. You're an MVP the year you were an MVP. You're not forever that guy. It, like that's not the way it functions. It's just a descriptor. But it's not. It's not the it's way not people ex- are using it. It's people not an expectation use, of talent level. It honestly is. The way people use it, it's like this guy is an, an MVP. That is what you're getting. It's not. We, we may have talked more about Cam Newton than any other quarterback on this podcast. And, and it's because I just put on my quarterback tier, Sam. He's tier three. He's a tier three quarterback. And How I, many tiers have you got? Four. Okay. Um, but tier three is like your middle, it's your middle class quarterback. It, it's like quarterback nine through 2021, 20, right? I keep using this, this broad range. I think Cam Newton's been there his entire career. I think he's always been a tier three quarterback. I think he's always been a guy where if you, you know, in a, in a given year, and those guys, they're volatile on their own merit because they're aggressive like Cam and Jameis and the Carson Palmer, they're aggressive. And sometimes things go really well and all the good stuff happens in one year and you have an MVP year. And other times, you know, he's got like four seasons, three seasons, I think grading in the twenties in PFF grading. He's only graded in the top 10 twice. So I think he's a tier three quarterback, right? Like in any given year, he could be really good. He could be really bad. He could land in the middle. 20s in rank rather than number. Rank, not in grade. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's ranked in the 20s from a ranking standpoint. He's ranked in the top 10 only twice. And of course, one of them was his MVP caliber season. So I think that's what Cam Newton is. But I also would say 
he gives the Patriots a better shot than Jarrett Stidham. Uh, the, the, the issue with New England is even if Brady was coming back and Brady was like 35, you'd still have some question marks like, man, who's going to emerge with the rest of these playmakers? They doubled Julian Edelman last year and nobody else could get open once teams did that. Uh, who's going to replace all this defensive talent, which is a consistent issue. Like that's a, that happens all the time in New England, right? There's like yeah. all these stars left, who are the new stars going to be on defense? And they kind of, they figure it out. But again, Brady's been that like, it's elite. Brady has been that glue piece. Like, you know, you're getting this baseline from the offense under Brady. They average more points than any other team over, you know, since 2006 or whenever we have the data for like 29 points a game during the Brady era that they've averaged. I mean, that's your baseline starting point every single year when you're going through all this other turnover, you can't count on that right now. So it is fascinating. The number of question marks in new England right now. So let's start with the offense. Um, Just putting rankings together as far as position groups go. Uh, Offensive line was top 10. Not surprising. They're they're at seven receivers. That was before. Marcus Cannon. That was before today. Marcus Cannon. You're right. That drops. We'll talk about that in a minute. That definitely would drop. Receivers, 29th. It's debatable that they're 30th or 31st <laughs> or 32nd. Tight ends, 32nd. And honestly, oh no, I, I, I didn't. Uh, these aren't my final rankings. These are like that, the ones. That will have been before right, Matt, like five Matt Lacoste opted out, and that wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever. It would not. It would not have made, but the tight ends, like, man, massive question marks, and they invested two third-round picks, so who knows. But offensively, you've got a, a third-tier, a, a tier-three quarterback, and usually if you have a tier-three quarterback and you have a nice situation as far as receivers and tight ends go, we talk ourselves into, you know, they'll have a good season. It's a lot harder for Cam Newton to come in here with Julian Edelman and a whole bunch of massive question marks in the receiver and tight end groups. Yeah. I mean, so across the board, like question marks is a great way of saying it, right? The, 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 everywhere you look with this team, there are now question marks. Um, we just talked about how Belichick is better than anybody else at putting players in a position to succeed in particular on defense, right? Cause that's his area. But he's done it on offense as well. Like they've rebuilt, they've reshaped and reprofiled that offense many times, depending on the players they've had, including quarterbacks, right? When Brady has gone down, they've had completely different looking offenses. When Jimmy Garoppolo has been quarterback, when Jacoby Brissett has been quarterback, they've, they've done that on offense as well. So question number one is, what the hell does a Cam Newton offense look like in New England and does Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels ability to play to the strengths of, of their, of a player actually bring the best out of Cam Newton in a way they were almost never able to do in Carolina. I can't wait Um, to see that. I can't wait. So that is fascinating Two, because Cam Newton is so what makes him special is that ability to be a power rushing threat but it's also the single biggest threat to his own durability and, you know, ability to last the season. What do they do with that? I mean, I've speculated that you might see two offenses, right? Like a conventional one for the first half of the season. And then when the chips are down, we unleash Cam Newton's rushing threat. And suddenly we have something that the league can't defend. That's going to be fascinating to see what they do with that. Or do they just say, Hey, we're only paying him for a year and it's hardly costing us anything. Let's just load the hell 
right? Let's just load them up and see what happens. Um, I was I was thinking about that too. The the one year thing, I, I think, could make them lean like, hey, let's just we're all you can only maximize Cam Newton if you use him as a runner, right? And that was what made him so special in 2015 too. He, can he do it for 19 games? I don't know. And and the way you laid it out kind of made sense too. But like, you can't sit that you can't like go two and six the first half of the year and then be like, right. all right, let's unleash him and, yeah, and on Halloween, not. yeah, because you're out of it. Um, but I do think they could try to run him into the ground and just see what happens. I also do believe the reason why they waited so long to sign somebody like they do believe in Jared Stidham to a point, right? They just would prefer not to start Jared Stidham if they had a better option. Like if, if they did just run cam into the ground and then you have Jared Stidham and you see what you have in him. Like, I don't know that they would hate that uh, as an option. I mean, I don't know how much they believe in Stidham versus how much like what were the other options now and they might I think all the veterans andy so Dalton, Nick thing, Foles. Right? now they might believe in him in as far as look we're not like we're not doing a lot better if andy dalton or nick Foles is starting but that i think is different to like he can be the long-term successor what i think the cam newton's uh, signing says is that at some point the deal just became too good to turn down so so that's where I think they believe in Stidham, right? If they're desperate, they would be desperate at the most important position in the NFL, meaning they would either have traded up for a quarterback. We don't know a they ton. trying. They might have, but they were either des- if they were desperate, they would have signed one of the veterans. They would have done what they could have done to get with the veterans. But because I think they were okay with their baseline of Stidham, they treated the quarterback position like they treat every other position. We'll wait for the second, third, fourth, twelfth wave of free agency and Cam Newton's bargain. And in their mind, he's like, "Oh, we're t- seriously, we're just kicking the tires on former MVP Cam Newton." Yeah. The same way they kicked the tires on former first round yeah, yeah. Tim Tebow. I mean, look, I think this the the Cam Newton deal is absolutely not a hey, look, they just outsmarted everyone. This is genius. It was just like, look, even if they win the Super Bowl and he wins MVP, it costs them like seven point five million. Like, this was just a deal that was too good to turn down yes. when your current starter is Jared Stidham. So, it, it, like, that's all it was. Um, at some point, it just became too big a bargain. You know, when you see something in the bargain bin, it's like 95% off, and it costs like 199 marked yeah. down from 250 Like, that's what this was, right? At some What's point, the worst that could happen? You yeah. buy it. At some point, you just go, oh, like, screw it. It's, it's too good. Um, so that – but I – I, I can get on board with the idea that they like believe in Stidham beyond like, I just don't think they saw a better option and not even, I don't think they saw a dramatically better option for what would need to have happened for them to pull it off. Right. So I think, so the options are your role with Stidham for a year and we, we have a better chance at something next year. Like I don't, to get to a quarterback at the top of this draft and by a quarterback, I'm going to assume the Patriots would not have been in love with Justin Herbert. So you're going to need to get above the dolphins to get to Tua. I mean, yeah. that's a lot. I think they basically just went, look to do that. We're going to have a way better shot at this next year. I could see we've, we've hypothesized that a team might be willing to do a different quarterback every year and rotate through yeah. one year contracts and all that stuff. I honestly think that the the Colts with the one year of Phillip Rivers are in prime position to do that. The Patriots are in prime position to do that. Aaron Rodgers is on record last week basically saying, hey, I'm not 
I'm expecting to not finish my career in Green Bay. The numbers suggest it's going to be really tough to trade for him after this season, but it's not impossible. Is that and the Patriots have a ridiculous amount of 2021 cap space? It's people have leaned again toward oh Belichick's going to tank and get Trevor Lawrence and blah blah yeah. blah blah blah. Belichick's old too. Like he's not he's not <laughs> coaching for 12 more right. years of Trevor Lawrence, so, right? Yeah, I mean that was is my it an Aaron. Is it an Aaron Rodgers thing though? Like are they going to be a team that just they either go year to year with the Cam right. Newtons and Marcus Mariotas, or could they be in the Aaron Rodgers sweepstakes a year from now? So earlier in this offseason, I did think there was a decent chance the Patriots were actually going to take a shot at this true tanking thing, go for Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields next year. I don't think that's what they're doing anymore. Um, I don't even know if that's ever what they were planning on doing, but I do think there's a good chance they think along the lines of what you just outlined in terms of, look, in this world of relatively replaceable starting quarterbacks, we can hit this baseline of capable starter really easily. And it doesn't have to be Jared Stidham. It doesn't have to be Andy Dalton. It, it doesn't, it's, it's easy. We'll get that guy every year, even if, it, even if we have to wait until June and sign whoever the Cam Newton is this year. They will do that. They will do what the Vikings did in the 90s and just roll through these veteran quarterbacks and get a capable, solid level of play every single year. And basically, I think, just bide their time until they can stumble into whatever the, the, whatever the upgrade is, whether it's somehow, somehow things go to hell, a bad season ensues, and they end up with a shot at a Justin Fields um, or a Trevor Lawrence in any given year. You know, whoever that is in 2021, 2022, 2023, they're basically just going to keep going along until the wheels fall off one year. Or, you know, somebody, somebody makes them an insane trade offer and they wind up with three first round picks that they can parlay into it. Or, you know, they trade for an Aaron Rodgers, whatever it is, they're going to stump. They're going to keep bumbling along at this baseline of average quarterback play and then look for the, the freaky upgrade that doesn't come along very often. I think it's a legitimate theory that could work. I, I also think this buys them a little bit of time to, to develop Stidham. If you're going to develop a quarterback, a guy who came out of an Auburn offense who has NFL tools. Here's here's what's in Stidham's favor. Auburn offense. Baylor, he went. He was a Baylor offense and an Auburn offense that doesn't have a whole lot of translatable NFL stuff. We saw him at the Senior Bowl. Just look more comfortable and just it felt different. It felt a little bit better at the Senior Bowl. Last year's preseason, the same thing. So we may have already seen. Hey, Stidham's starting this development, but you also don't want to like force him out there again with lesser supporting cast in his first year as a starter. So he could actually be something, but you know, but it's also worth, you know, letting him develop the rest of this offense. Let's start with the playmakers, Julian Edelman. He's getting older. Yeah. So that's, that was quarterback question mark. Now even question marks, Nikhil Harry, Muhammad Sanu, Jacoby Myers did some nice things last year as an undrafted free agent. They had Demir Bird. Here's the, he's your speed guy to kind of replace Philip Dorsett. Just run down the field and take your defense with you. Not just um, your your speed guy. He's the, the only. only <laughs> right. He is the yeah. only guy amongst the wide receivers and tight ends that can outrun you. By the listen, I feel really good about my call. Last year they played Detroit first preseason game and they they crushed them. It was one of those where it's like we have to over-exaggerate the first preseason game. This team looks great. They dominated. 
Detroit didn't do a thing, but I was watching the offense and I'm like, they just look slow. They all, they kept getting open and they did some good. They, they were fine. And Stidham had a nice game. They looked so slow. And boy, did that like forecast them being like the slowest team in the NFL. Just nobody. There was just a bunch of four, six dudes running around yeah. slowly and <laughs> not getting open during the regular season. They got open against Detroit's second stringers in week one. Um, I miss, I, we're not going to have those fun preseason overreaction takes yeah. this year. I'm, I'm a little sad with that. But you're right. There's no, there's no speed on this offense still, except Demir Bird. And I mean, look, the, Demir Bird is like, it's not like this guy, it's not like he's Robbie Anderson. You know, they brought in this like proven track record, deep threat speed guy. Like Demir Bird has flashed the occasional play here yeah. and there, but expecting him to come in and be Deshaun Jackson, you know, the one speedster that can answer all your woes feels like a stretch. So massive question marks around there and offensive line wise, we ranked them well because or ranked them high because Isaiah Wynn was solid. His first 500 plus snaps as a, as a starter at left tackle still want to see a little bit more. Joe Tooney was a top five guard last year at left guard. He is on the franchise tag, making a lot of money this year. Shaq Mason has been one of the league's best over the last few years at right guard. David Andrews is a good center. When I was making the offensive line rankings, we talked about this on the show. If I go and I say solid, 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 solid question mark, like that's one of the best offensive lines in the NFL, right? That's new England Four solids. And the question, and then Marcus cannon was actually a question mark at right tackle. Cause he was a couple years removed from his best season. He's now opted out. So right tackle could be Corey Cunningham could be second year player. Yodney Kajus, who looked like a really nice developmental prospect coming out of West Virginia could be Joe Tooney moving from guard or out to tackle, which I don't expect the Patriots to do, mm. but Tooney did play tackle at NC state and was really good at it. And the Patriots probably have, they definitely have better depth on the interior than they do a tackle. So it's a big question mark as far as what they do with cannon. Out. This is also another, another area where outside things are going to affect what happens here. Right? So the offensive line last year looked worse than it had in the past because the receiver sucked. Yeah, so yeah. the receiver sucked. Brady had to hold the ball longer than he's ever held it before. Had to basically wait until pressure arrived, then just get rid of the ball wherever the hell. And because nobody was still open, he was throwing incompletions where he used to throw completions in the face of pressure. So the pressure looks worse. You know what I mean? Independent of the fact that more of it is coming because you're holding onto the ball longer, it also looks like a bigger problem because – Instead of throwing completions when you're pressured, you're throwing incompletions or interceptions or, you know, whatever. So the offensive line looked like it fell to pieces last year, but actually what was happening is that everything around them was worse. Now you're replacing Tom Brady, who's one of the best in the NFL at getting rid of the ball quickly and minimizing the problems on the offensive line. You're replacing him with Cam Newton, who is at the other end of that scale. Like he will hold on to the ball longer than most. He will hang at the back of a pocket and cause some problems. Generally, he's not an offensive lineman's best friend in terms of making them look good from a pass protection standpoint. The receivers we just talked about do not look like a significant upgrade over the group last year. In fact, they look like the group from last year. There's basically no change. So that's probably not going to make the offensive line look better. Lastly, the best offensive line coach arguably in NFL history, is no longer working there. Dante Skarnacki has retired, and the last time that happened, they kind of fell to pieces. So three things that can impact offensive line play are all working against the offensive line. 
Yeah, I, I will be interested to see if Cam, you know, Cam did have that one year in Carolina, 2018, that everybody points to. Last time he was healthy, the stats were great. The stats were really good, and he did. Um, he was like two yards per attempt shorter than he normally right. is. Uh, he was throwing shorter passes and letting Christian McCaffrey run after the catch and all that stuff. And that would be, I'd say, where the Patriots have a strength, is having James White, Rex Burkhead, working out of the backfield. Their entire backfield is back intact. Sony Michelle. Michelle has not been good as a runner, essentially creating above and beyond expectation. They won a Super Bowl with him as the bell cow runner in 2018, but he was not great. Um, he was better in 2018 than he was last year. And you know, he was okay in 2018. But regardless, James White and Rex Burkhead, two guys who can catch the ball out of the backfield. I could see Cam relying on those guys. I, I could see them trying to run a similar offense from what they had with Brady. I don't know how much more downfield stuff they're actually going to attempt because again, they don't have the pieces, but in all of the, what if scenarios it's what if Nikhil Harry takes a step forward or at least becomes Uber contested catch space player. What if Muhammad Sanu is healthy coming off a of surgery and it gets open a little bit better than he did and understands the offense and is on the same page with cam. What if the Demir bird adds a little bit of speed and Julian Edmonds, the same, like if six, what ifs happen, the offense is reasonable. And then the tight ends, they were so bad last year with Matt Lacoste and Ryan Izzo. Like that was the starting group that they brought into the season and they got what you'd expect out of those two, two third round picks, Devin Asiasi, pretty good for a 280 pounder, Jermaine Wiggins type <laughs> clone and Dalton Keene who can move around the formation and all that. But question at tight end question, 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 question across the offense. The single the most important thing for receiver is separation and speed and, <laughs> the third round tight end is pretty good for a 280 pounder. Oh, he's got some wiggle at the top uh, of his routes. He's got some wiggle. I like Asiasi. I think he'll be the best. Getting, uh, just quickly to wrap up the offense, I, a huge amount of, they basically take, took the same approach with the wide receivers that the 49ers took a year ago with their defensive backs, right? Which is everyone spent all offseason saying, God, they need to add DBs because they're terrible. And they were like, no, 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 we actually like these guys. They're going to be better next year than they were this year. And the 49ers were right. The Patriots seem to have taken the same approach. They add Demir Bird. That, as you say, that's you know, it's not like a game changer. So a huge amount of this is this idea that first round pick Nikhil Harry, with a full season or a full off season um, and a full year under his belt, is going to be better. And Mohamed Sanu, now that he's working his way back, actually healthy, will be a different player. Do you have confidence in either of those things being true? No, I try to look, look, I ranked all the receiving cores and that was the biggest thing. When, when I was ranking receiving cores, like 24 through 32, I ran through the scenarios of what ifs and you, you could see like it could happen, but there's no confidence in it. And then even right. if that happens, you still compare it to the rest of the league. So even if Nikhil Harry becomes Dem like Demarius Thomas light in year two and Muhammad Sanu becomes the previous Muhammad Sanu, who's like a pretty good number three, you're still, and then you have Julian Edelman. You're still not looking at the Patriots like, man, there's a top 10 receiving core. Like, even if those good things happen, like they might rank 20th. They might rank 22nd if that happens. So that's where there are issues. And here's the other thing. Have the Patriots trotted out receiving cores like this before and won? Absolutely. With elite Tom Brady and a Gronk or multiple tight ends or whatever. So that is the difference. There's more pressure on these receivers to produce in this system 
when there's no tight end production. Yeah, and they also haven't really done that for like 50 years, and the game's a hell of a lot different now than it was then. You know what I mean? Well, like I'm just trying to think of like when else they did. I mean, like 2014, it was Julian Edelman, Brandon LaFell, who had no history of success right. with Carolina and um, Cam Newton, and then he became a good player as like the number four option in that offense. But the receiver is not the number four option in this yeah, offense anymore. But the, but the idea of just Julian Edelman versus Julian Edelman and Gronk is a massive difference. Like oh, yeah, that, no, that combination is huge. Like, you know, people, I think a lot of people cast their minds way back to the start of Brady, where his receiving core, you know, was like the revolving Branch, door of like, yeah, like those guys, right? The, like this, I don't think you can compare that era NFL to this era NFL. Like it's the same thing. Like, you know, when we were grading games and you go back to like 06, it's like a different world. Yeah. It's not the same thing. So you can't just say, well, back in, like back in 05, they were running these offenses with no-name receivers, and it was fine. It was perfect. Like, you can't run that system anymore. It doesn't function. Like, this yeah. is a passing league in a way it never was back then. It has changed. The other thing I think that's a significant problem in terms of that improvement, for Harry to take that step forward i think he needs sanu to take to be i think they need both to happen at the same time for one to happen you know what i mean yeah like in order for i think you can make Nikhil harry into a dangerous nfl receiver but only if you have a guy like sanu who can play outside and do a lot of the things that i don't think Nikhil harry can do if you don't have that i don't think Nikhil harry can be successful yeah, because I think he has to be more of a gimmick player in red zone. Like He's got to be what Brandon LaFell was, the number yeah. four option that did some nice things as a number four option. Jacoby Myers could be the wild card, too, because as an undrafted player, he was the one guy who actually showed a little wiggle and yeah. worked out of the slot, worked outside, and got open. He was just inconsistent at the catch point, and just in general, there was a reason why he went undrafted, I think. But he, he could be the wild card as like he keeps sneaking in there, maybe stealing some snaps from Sanu and – um, becoming a better option to complement Edelman in year two. Um, so defensively, I don't want to use the word, the phrase question mark again because it's we've used theme. it a million times. Question marks. But there's questions on defense. So the first um, one is how do they replace Dante Hightower? Dante Hightower has been the do-it-all. He's a linebacker. Like he is one of the few guys in the NFL. I always say this. He's a linebacker that you could actually have him rush the passer. Like you could actually put him on the edge and say, go beat this tackle one-on-one. -on -one. That doesn't happen. Linebackers don't do that. People thought that happened for years because they were like, oh, he's a three, four outside linebacker. He's a linebacker. Mm. It's like, it's not the same thing. Hightower had that level of versatility. Van Noy had that level of versatility. They lose both of those guys this off season. Don't give me that Van Noy face. I mean, I, mean, I don't know if Van Noy really had that. Even just there. like a Landon Roberts. So that's going to be your buddy, Jawan Bentley. Old, you know, hammer, run-stopping yeah. backer. It's his time to shine. Uh, they bring in Brandon Copeland from the Jets, who has played both. He's like Van Noy. He's played both edge and linebacker in his career. Um, I think it's their chance to just breed the young guys. Well, Josh also, Uche. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Do you think Uchi can come in and do that? right off the bat because he was a guy like his biggest thing in michigan was like this guy doesn't have a position like he's just lining up wherever i think he's more pass rusher than i think he is as well but he's like he, he unlike the other guys he actually has experience of being wherever the hell they wanted him at the time yeah i mean I, i'm intrigued by him I, I think he he had one of the highest pass rush win rates he was right up there yeah. with uh 
with Nick Bosa the last couple of years, as far as the best that we've seen. I think he is a natural gifted, pure pass rusher, but he actually has some pretty extensive experience of being, you know, a more conventional off the ball linebacker in a way that might suddenly become handy when you have to replace a high tower. And, and Jamie Collins too, by the way, though, but like high tower and Collins, those two guys next to each other as pure backers yeah. were just fantastic. They worked off each other really well. They played together in previous years. They got back together last year. Jamie Collins made a ton of plays on the ball. Collins is the athletic guy. Hightower could play the hammer. He could he could cover backs reasonably enough and all that. It's that's going to be really tough to to replace. Oh, it is. I mean, I'm it, that, it's going to be so interesting to see what they do with it because one, like Josh Uchi's role is going to be pretty fascinating. Two, I mean, we the, the whole Juwan Bentley thing is fascinating to me generally and has been since they drafted him again because it's the Patriots, right? And you 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 take that guy who is this one-dimensional, thumping, run-stuffing guy that doesn't seem to function in a passing system, and you put him anywhere else in the NFL, and this is why he went in the fifth round. Um, it's like, I don't that doesn't really function. But he goes to the Patriots, and it's like, wow, well, that's a team that actually knows how to use players like that and won't expose them to the things they're not good at. Suddenly, I mean, we've kind of been working on this basis of, you know, he'll actually get, and they seem to like him. So we've been working on this space of he'll get playing time, he'll look good, and we'll get to see. Now they actually suddenly need him to. You know, Hightower is not there anymore, and suddenly this guy needs to have a pretty significant role right away and be good. And then you've got the usual questions of New England, which is this, like, cycling through guys up front that are just sort of, you know, rotational bodies on the defensive line and the ever-present question of who the hell is going to generate pressure for them. The pressure thing is funny because Chase Winovich, 29, they've got like a who's who of guys PFF liked from a grading or pass rush win percentage standpoint in college who also didn't go in the first round. Uche is one of them. Chase Winovich, third rounder, 2019, got off to a pretty good start as a rookie. Uh, Dietrich Wise, you were just, Send to me like, dude, just continues to win. Like he did the same thing at Arkansas. He was a fourth round pick in 2017. Yeah, like it's like, if you go over the past, almost any period of time, he has the best pass rush win rate in the NFL. But over that same period of time, his work rate or his workload for the Patriots has been going down and down and down. Right. His, his work against the run has been horrendous. Abysmal. He's been, yeah. he's been destroyed. But if you told me at the end of the year, like, Hey, the Patriots stitched together a pass rush of Dietrich wise, chase Winovich and Josh Uche, Josh Uche is the, the main catalyst, or maybe Byron Cowart, the fifth round pick in 2019, former yeah. five-star. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. So I'm less worried about that because they've won with lesser pass rushes. Shalik Calhoun Shalik. is up there. John Simon. I mean, it is, a whole bunch of either unheralded, like unheralded college types that deserve a shot or reclamation projects up front. Uh, Lawrence Guy, Bo Allen, they'll stitch it together up front. And, and, you know, I think Danny Shelton was actually a solid run defender that they might miss a little bit. They don't have that type of huge body there, but um, I think they'll be okay up front. Linebacker, question mark. Secondary is where they're good. This is their strength. This yeah. is the reason why New England's in every game now is Stephon Gilmore, the best cover corner in the NFL, the best man coverage corner in the man coverage scheme, Jason McCourty and JC Jackson. That's your best trio. Probably well, one of your best trios in the NFL. Um, probably your best trio of just straight outside corners though. I mean, those guys um, they're, they are legit. Jonathan Jones, a really good slot corner. 
Devin McCourty still there at safety. You lose Deron Harmon and his dependability on the back end, always making plays. Terrence Brooks, not as good there. Add Kyle Duggar, the second round, uh, Patrick Chungi type of replacement. Now that, and you see that sooner than later now. Yeah. Now that Chung is out, but they're deep and they've got, um, some really good players all throughout the secondary. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of with you. I think the front seven, I think the front seven we, we assume will be fine because of the Patriots, right? Like, yes. I think people generally default to that as an idea. Oh, they'll be, they'll be okay. Cause it's the Patriots and this is what they do. I think if there's any area where that is legitimately like a thing, it's the front seven. They've consistently been able to just throw bodies at that and figure out where they fit. And even if it's not the ones you expected, they emerge. Somebody emerges, right? right? It's, it might not be the guy that you thought it was going to be, but someone's going to show up, spend 500 snaps, being pretty good at what he does well, and you're okay. So I think we assume the front will be okay. The back end is where it gets interesting because they're really good there um, and should be able to patch up a lot. The one thing that's also interesting is, like, that's a lot of leadership that's departed and not just a part of, but is opting out as well. The Hightower and Chung thing, like those are two of the most important voices on that team. Suddenly that's a lot resting on Devin McCourty and Stefan Gilmore. Who's not really, there's not really a vocal, you know, presence, yeah. really good presence, you know, arguably the best cornerback in the NFL, but not that type of lead, more of a leader by example guy than a leader by, you know, any kind of inspiration. It's a really good point because say what you want about PFF and how we don't, we don't quantify that stuff. So sometimes we don't focus on it, but in new England's history, they had their first run last two decades ago. Now um, that had the Teddy Bruskies of the world and they had Ty law and they had that like nucleus of dudes who just came through the system and everything. But let's not forget like they, this defense hit a lull. Like there was a point between like Oh nine and 12 or you know, there was a point where this defense was not good. And Name talent on the team wasn't that bad, but they were kind of lacking. You know, Brewski had retired and Law was like, a lot of those guys were gone. Willie McGinnis, all those guys were well gone. They didn't have a nucleus of leaders. Belichick relies on those guys. Um, and then they started to become good again once McCordy became like he's a veteran now and he's a and he's one of the leaders of the new wave and Hightower and Chandler Jones or whoever else it was at the time. Uh, that is a question mark. It is a question because. It's different, and we haven't, you know, they haven't had to deal with this um, at the, to this extent in many years. So um, I still think the defense will be good. Let's also not forget they looked like the 85 Bears defensively when they were going up against, like, Luke Falk and a whole bunch of questionable quarterbacks, terrible quarterbacks the first half of the year, and then the second half of the year, Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes. It all – it didn't come crashing down defensively. It just came back down to earth, like where they right. should have been. So like and, any other defense, they're at the mercy of who they face. Yeah. And for the third of four times this podcast, their schedule gets harder this year. So it's right. going to look tougher. All right. Let's wrap up New England, man. Are they, are they like, are they right there with the Bills still competing for the division? If like, is Bill Belichick the only thing that's keeping you saying they're in the mix? Like if Bill Bell, if any yes. other head coach is there, yes, you're, you're calling him a five win team. Yeah, six. But yes, I, I don't think that's unreasonable. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that man for man, this is not a particularly good roster right now. 
if it wasn't for Bill Belichick, you would not expect this team, particularly against a team like the Bills in the division, you would not be expecting them to win it. I think that almost because the schedule is getting harder, his ability and um, style of going game by game, game plan by game plan, you know, not system for the year, like his ability to take each single game plan and come up with the best way of beating the opposition is going to sneak them a couple of wins versus what the Bills or the Jets or the Dolphins will do in the same tough circumstances of a stronger schedule. So I think the Patriots will sneak a couple of wins that they shouldn't get, and they'll probably end up, yeah, in the same like 9-10 win range that the Bills will be. Here's the, the one thing I want to warn people that are going to use the Matt Castle. I've said this before, but the Matt Castle, Jimmy Garoppolo, Jacoby Brissett idea. Oh, they won without those guys. Those teams that those guys played with, right? Brady was thirty-two and two. The Castle yeah. one is the worst, right? It's like, oh, they won eleven games in Matt Castle. It's like, yeah, but they won sixteen. The game, the, the they year were sixteen before. and zero, eighteen and one, and then they, you know, went eleven and five. Yeah, with with the easiest schedule, one of the easiest schedules. And then in twenty sixteen, that team once Brady came back from a suspension, they went fourteen and one. Yeah. And they lost their only game like at the buzzer and they won the Super Bowl. And that was the game. That was the team that Garoppolo and Percent went three and one with like, okay, great. Like the two times that Brady didn't play were probably the two best rosters in Patriots history. So that would be like the, Oh, he's done it before. Well, Cam Newton's about to take over. a not so good Patriots roster relative to the last 20 years of this dynasty. So, but I do, th- I mean, it is a very real thing that look, Belichick is, the greatest coach in NFL history. Oh yeah. And I think the greatest coach in terms of doing those things we talked about, tailoring what you have to what you, to what you doing the best that you can with what you have. And a no point is that more important than when everything changes, you know? So this is the year that that actually makes the biggest difference it's ever made because everything is different. Everything has just gone to hell question marks everywhere. And the best way of addressing those question marks is, is actually having a guy that will work towards what they do, what their strengths are. So I think, I think the Patriots, I still, I think I would pick the bills to win the AFC East. I think the Pats eight win team. Eight. Okay. I'm going to go with nine. Eight and eight. New York jets. Let's wrap it up, Sam. Yes. Speaking of question marks, let's call this Patriots were the question mark team. This is the what if team because the what ifs are all over the offensive line in the in receiver. At uh, let's go through the the team rankings here. And it, oh, man, I never really finalized these. Remember, I just put like thirty two next to all the teams I think were terrible. You know what the most surprising thing about the Jets is just from the get go, the get go, um, yes. they won seven games last year. Sneaky seven. Right. Sam, Sam Darnold got mono and they still won seven games. <laughs> Luke Falk and Trevor Simeon played football for them last year and they still won seven games. Exactly. I think so this, this is another example though of like seven games. We get a little bit better. We win eight or nine. No, because the schedule gets harder. You're going to win seven or less again and it's going to feel like a disappointment. My, here's my biggest concern. 
we rank their secondary, their Jamal Adam, Adams list secondary 32nd and yeah. whatever. When we rank a team 32nd, like they could be 29th. They could be, it doesn't matter. They're, they're not projected to be good. All right. Let's start there though. Cause we haven't done the Jamal Adams thing. I love the move for the jets. Yes. Love the move for the jets. So Bradley McDougald is not a terrible replacement for Jamal. It's one of my guys for the, my guy podcast. I'm a big McDougald fan. Look, you, you can make the case that Jamal Adams is the best do it all safety in the NFL, right? He's a top, you know, 25 player in the entire league, but he plays a not particularly important position. And Bradley McDougald, I don't want to say he's a poor man's version because he's not bad. Like he's a decent player, but whatever the whatever the next rung up from poor man's is, you know, a lower middle class version of um, of Jamal Adams, right? He's a pretty good replacement to get a first round pick and Bradley McDougald would have been a great trade for the Jets to get another first on top of that is absurd. I think it's it's huge. It, Brad, you, you, Jamal Adams is the best do-it-all safety. Bradley McDougald, you could make the case, is the best Kansas safety in the NFL. And Kansas safety, Sam, they don't do anything in life. They're terrible at everything. Huh. Costco. So McDougald just becoming a pretty good NFL player. Good for him. Um, no, seriously, though, the Jets, here's, here's, the, here's the overarching point, right? 2018. They trade up to get Sam Donald. They had five other picks, not one, and they were all third rounder later. The following year, they had six total picks, only a first rounder, um, no second rounder. When you trade up to go get a quarterback, you almost certainly have to draft in volume, and you have to, you have to replenish those picks somewhere, or else you're playing whack-a-mole with your roster. You're trying to... Shore up the offensive line. Oh, no. Now we have to shore up the receiver. Oh, no. The secondary is falling apart. This is the consistent theme right now. If you trade up for a quarterback, you have to make up for it somewhere. So, or, or the quarterback that you trade up for has to be able to paper over those cracks, right? Oh, like, so that would be yeah, like if Mahomes. If the quarterback – well, not even Mahomes. So Mahomes is the obvious example, right? But Deshaun Watson is another. Like yes. Deshaun Watson has been good enough where you can shortchange him with the rest of the roster, and he's good enough to overcome that. Darnold is not yet. Jared so, Goff is not. Like, and he, if you, it's, it's a perfect example, Sam. That's great. Because I think Houston's playing whack-a-mole, too. Their secondary is terrible. But they, right. they spent a whole year on their offensive line while everything else got depleted. And that's what's keeping them from being a fringe play. Like a, we get into the playoffs team to the team that's challenging Mahomes and the Chiefs. Because they could be there. The Jets are playing whack-a-mole with just a roster to, you know, be competitive. And my concern is where they're weak, secondary and receiver. So now that if you can separate the fact that Jamal Adams is awesome and I, the, the initial reaction for people is like, you spend all you draft every year to find a player like Jamal Adams. But if you could take a, a deeper look at this and say you got three years of Jamal Adams play, Granted, yeah, they, they didn't win anything, but it doesn't matter. Like, you got three years of service time out of Jamal Adams, your first-round pick, and then flipped him for two other first-round picks and, as you mentioned, a solid player. Like, you make that deal every single time, and it's only because superstars by name in the NFL that are not quarterbacks, they're, they're just not as important. Not They just don't win games 
like superstars in other sports. Jamal Adams is a star in, in, in the NBA. If you traded for a star of Jamal Adams or trading of Jamal Adams caliber, you go from bad team to playoff team to like, that makes you like a, a title contender. If you in the NHL, it probably impacts less right in baseball. It probably impacts pretty strongly like star players. Have, but in the NFL star non quarterbacks do not move the needle at the same level as other sports. And I think it's really tough for fans to understand that disconnect. Also, you don't have to pay him in the money thing. Right. Right. So like it, if you'd got nothing else out of this other than Bradley McDougal and a first round pick, it would have been a good move. The fact that you get another first round pick and you don't have to pay his contract. Like it's, I mean, I get that you've said goodbye to your best player and that sucks, but it's, it's such the right move for the jets and it's a great deal for them. But I mean, it doesn't, the, the problem is it doesn't help right now. Right. It does not. The issue. It does not help right now. But that, so, I mean, that's the problem when you're talking about, you know, it's season preview time and you just got worse. That's yeah, so not great. Here's why we think they're the 32nd best secondary. That might be harsh. I, I don't, I'm not, I wanted, I honestly, when I was putting the secondaries together, I said there's seven teams that could be last. So they could be 25th. This could be the 25th best secondary. It depends on where you want to rank them. That's just who I, I, I should have tiered everything. I tiered my quarterbacks. I should have tiered the secondaries. Pierre Desir at cornerback could be good. Has been okay at best throughout his career. Author Millett is going to start or Quincy Wilson's going to start at the other cornerback position or Nate Hairston. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there. Brian Poole has one good year under his belt. He's coming over to play nickel or he's going to play nickel. Sorry. And then Marcus May has been a solid safety. He's been a nice little free safety to compliment Jamal Adams flying around all over the field. And Bradley McDougal is a solid, strong safety. As we said, there's some solid in there. There might not be last, but they're in the bottom third of the league. Ashton Davis, if he's healthy, nice little third round pick. They've got some good safeties. Cornerback is a massive question mark though. Yes. I think that's, that sums it up. Their safety situation is not bad. Their cornerback situation very probably is. Um, They've got and it's not some... like they have the pass rush to protect them for the 15th yes. year. Their pass rush is poor. It's nobody. I don't know. How is this team? Like the last good pass rusher the Jets had was John Abraham, who a lot of people are too young to remember him being a good pass rusher. Like yeah. that's how long ago this was. That's nuts. That should Other not be possible. On the edge, at least. Yeah, we have Mahalo yeah, yeah. Hokerson. Yeah. I mean, as an edge rusher. Edge. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they're trotting Jordan Jenkins, Terrell Basham, Harvey Lange. I mean, those are the guys they're trotting out there. They could have been 32nd and defensive line, except Seattle, I think, might even be worse. Yeah. Barry Zuniga could be third-round pick. Move him around. Our boy Henry Anderson on the interior. Um, but they need a lot to happen up front to help protect what's happening on the back end. Yeah, nobody on their edge-rushing group last year topped 40 total pressures which when you consider their top two rush the passer 668 times is wretched return in terms of pressure rate. It's that's awful. Um, I think it's amazing how hard they've been struggling to find those guys. Um, a huge amount for this team, the defense rests in Quinn and Williams becoming the Quinn and Williams that we thought he was going to be, as opposed to the guy we saw last year. Yeah. Like that, that to me was one of the most surprising first year performances of any rookie we've seen come out since we've been grading college. 
like in terms of be, the guy being completely different to what you thought he would be, that is one of the biggest shocks to me. Not just that like he didn't play as good as we thought he would be, but that he was completely anonymous as a pass rusher and any good he did was as a run defender. Like I, I thought at the minimum we would see a guy that was a pretty good pressure player right out of the gate and then we'd see how good he could be in terms of rounding out his play. But he, he was nothing as a pass rusher. Yeah, I, sometimes I defer. Sometimes I worry about he was he had one full year as a starter and he had like 200 snaps of awesome previous mm-hmm. to that. So we talked him up. We thought he was great. Sometimes in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, do we put too much stock in just that one year? And sometimes do college players in NFL, do, do players progress the same way they did in college in the NFL? So he didn't play early on at Alabama. He slowly eased his way into the lineup. And like by his third year, it's like, OK, here's a star. Sometimes will you see some of that at the NFL level as well? I don't, sometimes I think guys might just kind of, they might just progress in a similar manner, start slow and build it up. And then, okay, then by year two or year three or whatever, whatever it is, they, they look better. I think that's what the jets need to bank on here. Um, can I ask you something? Yes. Uh, Adam Gase. Yes. He is universally acknowledged in our circles as a poor head coach. LOL, Adam Gase, you're, you're an idiot. You run an archaic offense that doesn't help your quarterback. You do all this stuff. Um, I think Jim Caldwell had a little bit of that, right? Like Jim Caldwell, nobody was like, here's this dynamic, awesome head coach. But Caldwell had his teams overachieve a little bit. Is it fair to suggest that Adam Gase's teams have actually overachieved? They've at least reached their baseline, if not overachieved in four years as head coach. Let me remind you of what's happened. In 2016, the Miami Dolphins went 10-6 and six and made it to the playoffs. In 2017, Ryan Tannehill missed the whole season. They pulled Jay Cutler off of a Fox broadcast and future reality TV career to win six. Jay Cutler, right off the couch, smoking butts, not working out, six wins. 2018 Dolphins, Right before they started the re- like they might have been a little bit better roster than they they were seven and nine though. Twenty eighteen, he gets fired out of seven and nine Dolphins, probably where they should have been. And last year's horrendous Jets were seven and nine, as you mentioned, mono and whatever. Adam Gase in our circles is generally frowned upon, looked down upon, and whatever. I'm not saying that's wrong, but is it also crazy to suggest, given the rosters he's been given, he's over, he's at least reached his baseline, and if not overachieved based off what I just read. I think the bottom, the bottom number like wins and losses, which certainly for some people, that's all they're going to care about. I think you're going to make the case that he's done as well as you could expect him to do. The problem is that this is a guy who made his name out of being a quarterback guru. You know, he was there, um, Denver, right? That's where yeah, like, the Peyton Manning revival with, with Denver, yep. which, and, so it's always a little bit concerning when one guy takes, not takes credit, get, is given a significant amount of credit for something that appears to be very much somebody else's thing, <laughs> yeah. right? Like Peyton Manning was massively successful in Denver, almost a hundred percent because they junked whatever plan they were going to run with and just said, tell us what we're to run. Like Manning comes in, we're going to have this, this hybrid offense of what you used to do and what we do now, and it's going to be amazing. 
And three games in, it was like Manning can't throw. All right, Peyton, tell us what the hell to run. You know your body better than we do. Help us out here. Manning like reinvented his own offense became an MVP again, and it's one of the most absurd things ever. And Adam Gase comes out of that with a lot of credit. That, to me, is a little bit concerning. Now, he goes to Miami, and you have this guy in Ryan Tannehill who had a pretty high baseline. Now, maybe you can argue that, you know, given he was a pretty high first-round pick, he never developed into the player you thought he was going to be, given how quickly he started and how sort of young he was from an experience point of view at quarterback, given, you know, college wide receiver to quarterback, blah, blah. But the point is he didn't get better under Gase's tutelage. Um, neither has Sam Darnold yet, but obviously he's got the caveats of mono and all, all those kinds of things. But basically like, where's the evidence that the thing he's supposed to be good at is, has been helping, has been getting better under his watch. Like if anything, the evidence there says the thing that he's supposed to be good at is headed in the wrong direction under his watch. I I mean, look, this, this year I think is a big year for Gase and for Darnold, right? They're both sort of entering these must perform seasons. Darnold, it's fine. Like last year you had the caveat of mono, but basically there's almost no evidence at this point of Sam Darnold being anything other than not very good. Let me, Let me make the case really quick. Yeah, because I don't. I'm not. I'm not a believer. I'm just looking at. I'm just looking at some of the evidence. In the first year that he was in Miami, Ryan Tannehill, just using passer rating as a proxy, had the highest passer rating of his career, and his grade hadn't changed. Right. Yeah. In 2018, Tannehill was horrendous. Remember, he was fumbling left and right, turnover-worthy plays like crazy, and somehow just he had a 92.7 passer rating as well. Like he had a really good. He had really good numbers that year because yeah. of yards after the catch and screens and all that stuff. So he actually had – he hasn't developed quarterbacks necessarily. Right. But he, his, his offenses have gotten production that's above expectation Yeah, but previous, than previously. Two, two things with that. One, it's, it's concerning to me that the quarterback has not improved under his watch. I, right? I get it. I, I'm fine the with fact, that. The fact that the quarterback has, if anything, gotten worse, not better, is more important than the fact that the passer rating and, and as a proxy of the overall passing offense has gotten better. The sure. other thing is when you, you know, use the R&D guys, Eric Eager and the, the data science, when they look into the sort of coaching above expectation stuff, he doesn't show well in that. So the, I don't think it's necessarily correct to credit him for the fact that Tannehill's passer rating was – higher than his grade says it should have been that bring it up as a point i think you can i I mean it makes sense logically but the data in terms of what you expect over expectation is not there so something else is driving that i'm not looking at the greatest groups of supporting cast that they've had or anything like that either i'm just saying so look he doesn't he's probably a far better coach than crazy eyes press conference guy would suggest right (laughs) I, i think that's a legitimate thing that's working against him is everyone took a look at that press conference and went, that's absurd. Like there's no way this guy is a top end head coach. And genuinely he probably has to battle that. He's not, he's not like a walking disaster. The guy's not garbage. I'm just saying that he's now entering a season where the quarterback needs to perform. And therefore like, this is the, this is the year he needs to perform as well. Cause this is a quarterback guru staring at a season where his team has a quarterback who's in a make or break year. If they both stink, it's problems for everybody. 
Let's just wrap up the defense really quick. CJ Mosley is the, the big name that opted out. He only played a handful of snaps last year, signed that big contract. He's a better run defender than he is coverage player in general at linebacker. So like signing him for that big money was a massive question mark. Hey, drink question mark at the time anyway, but they just lost their two best defensive players potentially. Um, so I think the defense is going to, it's going to be in trouble uh, this season. The question is going to be offensively, whether Sam Darnold again, does not have a great group of playmakers as far as we know what we're going to get from these guys. They might have the widest range of outcomes of any wide receiver core in the NFL. And maybe the offensive line, I don't know if the wide the offensive line has the widest range of outcomes, but it has a, it has a wide range. Um, so this is make or break year for Sam Darnold. And we've made the point before he could get better and it might not show st- statistically. And I'm okay with that. I just want to see him take a step forward. And I think the team is still in the middle of a rebuild, especially offensively ton of resources thrown at the offensive line. They're probably another year of resources being thrown at it to get it back to average and on track. Um, just released Brian winters, who was one of the guys that we thought like would at least compete for a starting. Like he's been the starter there. It's also funny when like he hasn't been a good starter in a few years. Um, yeah. But did but, you see the, the tweet? Yeah. I saw the tweet. starting uh, starting guard won't be on, you know, starting caliber guard won't be on, right. you know, won't be available for long. It's like, yeah, but that's like, <laughs> how good was he when he was starting? Like just starting is not, that's like us saying like we release Sam and it's like podcast host free at the ringer. Yeah. Pick it's like full timer won't be available for long. <laughs> So anyway, I think that locks in Greg Van Roten as the starting uh, right guard, potentially coming off his career year. Connor McGovern, the career year at center. Alex Lewis, Lewis, highest career grade in a season, seventy-one, seventy point five. Yeah, so he has one, two, three seasons in the sixties. One with seventy point five, and one with a fifty-six. And that was like three years ago, four years yeah. ago in the 70s? Yeah, four. Three more in the 50s, in fact. So, again, like this is your baseline is below average. Right. So, I think Van Roten's at guard, McGovern at center, right tackles a battle between George Fant and Chuma Adoga, which is our, like that doesn't feel great. And then Makai Becton, he's a rookie left tackle that mm-hmm. we had um, some concerns about. So, um, we'll see. We'll see what happens with that line but we right now rank them in like the bottom five. I mean, yes. Some guy did the math on it, right? Let's assume all of them are coin flips to be average. If that's the case, this offensive line has a one in 32 chance of being an average unit. Like the the chance of flipping heads five times in a row. It's extremely unlikely. Now, some of them may be better than that, right? Like Connor McGovern in particular, given that he's coming off his best year, it may be a better than 50% chance of being average. But like, that's the kind of thing you're dealing with here, right? You're trying that, to overhaul an entire group and expect all five of them to get better. It's, it's not likely. It, well, that offsets the fact that the right tackle position is not even close to a coin flip with George yeah, Fance, who's true. graded in the 40s when playing tackle, and Adoga, true. who's a third-round pick, who graded in the 40s while playing tackle in his only year. So, right. yes. But... I could see the receiving core come together. Brashad Perryman averaged over 17 yards per catch last year. Started to look like that first round talent. Hasn't dropped passes like he was earlier in his, in his career. Denzel Mims, the other vertical threat that you liked coming out of the draft. Jamison Crowder, 
he's very much like Cole Beasley in the slot. You know he's going to get open. He does it well. When he's healthy, he at least gives you that security blanket. And then who knows if Josh Doxson could become a pretty decent number four. Number four. Um, and Chris Herndon comes back at tight end. It's not, yeah. it's not good compared to the rest of the league on paper, but there's enough what-ifs that if, you know, if those hit, you're like, hey, Sam Donald's got his best supporting cast here at least. Yeah, I, I do kind of like this group. Uh, obviously, I like Denzel Mims more than a lot of people. Um, but this, he was, I think, one of the more polarizing receiving prospects this year. Like, people seem to either be major Denzel Mims stands or, like, thinking he was, you know, yeah. thinking he was a low second-round pick. Right. Um, I, I, I like him a lot. I think he's got the ability to do a lot of things for them. Brashad Perriman, I think, is the big the big sort of – gamble not the not the guy he's the most important thing from this receiving core right because he showed the back end of last year that he was capable of being like a high-end starting difference making receiver um which is what he should be given where they draft where he was drafted right which is was he top 10 um like he was a highly no, tired, not that high not pretty that high, high though right he was, was 20 he was in the 20s i think so. 20s okay yeah so he was a first round highly talented receiver with devastating speed and big time size, but it had been a disaster in two previous spots, Cleveland, Baltimore winds up in Tampa, uh, buried on their job depth chart and then injuries hit. And suddenly he's like a starter for the last few games of the season has three back to back to back hundred yard games, makes some spectacular catches, looks like the guy he was supposed to be. Um, and like that ability is still there, but, it was like, we're, we're not even talking small samples. Like we were concerned about the small sample size of Quinn and Williams based off a year plus 200 snaps. Like Perriman has had the 200 snaps and bad play before that. So it's a huge question mark about whether he, he can even re- replicate what Robbie Anderson left, which is, you know, one of the more consistent deep threats in the NFL. That is a big gamble, but I think the payoff is huge. So I can definitely see a world where Perriman realizes his potential. Mims is the player I thought he was coming out. And Jamison Crowder is a really good um, go-to guy from the slot. You're right. That suddenly becomes a really interesting group, particularly with Le'Veon Bell out of the backfield. (laughs) 125-year-old Frank Gore pounding the ball at the middle. Like, there was the... (laughs) I was wondering which piece you were laughing at, whether it was Bell catching passes or if you'd gotten to read... Gore's name on the no, it's just the idea that Frank Gore is still playing football in today's NFL is hilarious to me. Um, but that's not a terrible group of you know supporting cast skill position players. I agree. It's just they're the what if team, right? Because yeah. we just said if it's if this, if this, if that. It's a lot of if then statements for our uh, for our coders out there, for our programmers. There's the uh, this season with his opt out, um, I think assuming I've done the math right. CJ Mosley is going to have earned $254,000 for every snap he's played in his first two seasons for the Jets. Oh, that's Chase Daniel style. Mm, that's way better than Chase Daniel. <laughs> Did you finally correct your numbers on that? He was over 200K per attempt or something, wasn't he? Yeah, I had it on. I had a I had the decimal in the wrong place. I was off by a factor of 10. Um, I, I wrote about Le'Veon in the, the running back section. Nothing sums up the running back's dependency on their run blocking than Bell averaging only 3.2 yards per carry last year. Yeah. And he had a 69.9 rushing grade. The previous year, his rushing grade was actually worse, 67.7. He averaged four yards per carry. 
So 0.8 difference, very similar Russian grade. Some of it was fumble driven with the Steelers, but either way, um, the Jets had the third lowest run blocking grade in the league last year. So Makai Becton, I think improves that at least. Like he'll give them an opportunity and like, you know, some of those runs off the left side and all that backside cutoffs or whatever he does. Um, but this will be an interesting one. I could see a path where the, the playmakers look good. Yeah. I could definitely see that. Um, but you got to figure out what you have in Sam Darnold. And again, the reason why the Jamal Adams trade is important, it gives you flexibility for the first round. Now in the future, two first rounders coming up. Are you going to be looking for the next quarterback or are you just looking to build around Sam Darnold? I think regardless of what you're looking to do, you need that kind of flexibility as a roster. Don't forget yeah, Joe I mean, Flacco's there. This this team, I think, is it's all down to what happens with Sam Darnold, right? Every every season we've seen him dating back to college, there's been a stretch you can put together where it's like Sam Darnold looks amazing, right? College, you know, if you you make the right split, he's the worst quarterback in the in the country versus the best, right, or close to it. In year one, it's like, uh, that was pretty ugly, but look at the back, look at the last couple of games, right? The, the last few games put it all yeah. together. It was one of the, it was Mr. December. It looked like the best quarterback in the NFL for December. The Geno Smith. Right. Then the last season, it was, oh, well, he's got mono, so you have to throw out the first half of the year. And then again, look at this stretch down the bank. We just got, we, that's where it was. That was a real Sam Darnold. Like every year, there's a stretch where, where Sam Darnold fans will make the case that he's the best guy. And then, then you've got this group of guys that are just like madly obsessed with him. Like Dan Orlovsky says he would take him as the best young quarterback in the NFL right now over MVP Lamar Jackson. Dan's never come off his Darnold take. And, right. and I, I loved a lot of what Darnold did coming out of college. Yes. But my point is like the people that are, the people that are Darnold stands are like, they're out there like they are. And so, and, and there's thing, something every year to keep those guys in there. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Daniel but, Jeremiah loves him and Daniel, Dan Orlovsky. Right. Um, loves him. Equally, and, uh, every year there's like some pretty significant caveats to those impressive yeah. plays. Look, I, I still believe Donald can be pretty good. Um, I don't like just throwing the age thing out there. He's still young. He's still young though. Yes. Um, so only 23 years old right now. So I could see him, you know, developing. Um, I also think it's fair to say he's got, he's had maybe the worst situation. Remember all of those quarterbacks came in. Darnold had a bad situation. Rosen had one of the worst situations we've seen in recent years. And Josh Allen had a bad situation in that time. Josh Allen now has a great one. Yeah. Josh Allen. I mean, Josh Rosen. Um, well, that doesn't have any more opportunities. Yes. Uh, and Darnold now still has a bad situation. <laughs> still has uh, potentially. We'll see what happens if they develop. But yeah, definitely a pivotal year for Sam. You know, you want to see him at least make progress, even if everything around him isn't great. Um, from a Jet standpoint, it's almost like they're starting the rebuild again. Joe Douglas is only in his first full year as a GM, so there's still more work to do with this. Yeah, roster. I mean, obviously Darnold is the big, the big differentiator how good he is is going to be what determines how good this team is but the other big thing is like you know the offensive line is a one in 32 chance that it becomes average but where does it fall on that spectrum right yeah because ultimately i mean there's a there's a one in 32 chance it becomes average there's a smaller chance that it becomes really good like all five of those things hit and they they all have career years again they, they suddenly have a better than average offensive line 
But again, it's it's the what ifs. Like the 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 range of outcomes for pretty much everything on the Jets is insane. Like it's the broadest spectrum of any team in the NFL, maybe. And that offensive line could go anywhere from like a pretty good unit to a disaster again. Here's what here's the interesting thing, right? I, I only pose the Adam Gase question because like if you just hear how bad a guy is over and over again, like you just it's probably not, it's probably not as bad as what you're saying. And I use Jim Caldwell as an example. Everybody wanted to push Jim Caldwell out of Detroit. When you actually look back and it's like, he made the playoffs with some mediocre rosters. Like he right. actually made, you don't, you don't, he's not a top 10 coach or anything, but he probably overachieved, you know, yeah. I'm not saying Adam Gase is that guy. Um, but it is interesting. I don't think he's had the best situations. And then I'll say, if you want the offensive line to hit and the playmakers to hit and all that stuff, Adam Gase might not be the guy, you know, they might not have the people in place to do that. Now, if you brought in like Sean McVay, I don't know if you had a McVay type where he just rejuvenated the Rams in 2017 with this group of playmakers, like you could see that too. And that's, that would be the argument against Gase. Like, do you think Gase is going to get the most out of these guys? Or if you had, uh, what's his face from Oklahoma? Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, Riley, I'm just, it's late, Sam. It is. Like, Dude, if Lincoln Riley came in and got the most out of these guys, would you be surprised? It's warm Welcome in the morning. back, podcast. It's, it's I don't warm know in the what morning. We're doing. How in God's name do we, do we uh, spin out four teams into two and a half hours? Yeah, this was a big mistake. We should big probably, mistake. We, the next division should probably be shorter than this. We're wrapping it up. That's it. Welcome to season nine, PFF NFL podcast. We're going to do two and a half hours every single week. We've decided that Joe Rogan is the most successful podcaster in the world. So we're just going to do five hour <laughs> podcasts every week. Oh gosh. They just take pee breaks in the middle of it and stuff too, right? Should we just do that go. now? Come back for part two. Yeah, let's do part. Let's knock out the AFC North. No, just the, the whole AFC. We could just roll through the morning. We should. Right morning, into our 9 a.m. meeting. Right. The morning meeting is at 9 a.m. That gives us that gives us eight clear hours to get through the next three divisions. Don't tempt me here. <laughs> Let's do it. I just wrote 60,000 words on all the teams. I'm, they're fresh. I'm ready. That's what I'm saying. Well, that'll do it for the AFC East podcast, though. In reality, uh, that's it. So Go take a pee, get back. a coffee, and we'll just roll through the next eight hours, and we'll have like a podcast. We'll have a Joe Rogan beating podcast. Based off the text messages I'm getting, I got to go clean the kitchen, <laughs> and that's not happening tonight. So excellent. Good, to, good to have you back, Sam. Thanks. If you guys missed us last week, just listen to this in three different parts. It'll be like we never left. Yeah. This, and, this uh, podcast, by the way, is so large that the audio file is now measured in gigabytes, not megabytes. Oh no! An Are we audio even be able file. To send it. We're not even going to be able to send it properly. I don't know. It's that somebody else's problem. That's it. We're out. We'll be back on Thursday with another division for probably less than two and a half hours. God, yes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We can't run at this kind of time on somebody on somebody else's dime. This has got to no, be free is, time in the middle of the night. It's only after the kids go to sleep. Yeah. yeah. Right. Bye-bye. See ya.